Welcome, everybody. Welcome to Season 4 of the Silm Film Project. My name is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and I am excited to begin our new exploration as we continue to progress through the Silmarillion material, uh, 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 planning our fun adaptation. For those of you who are uh, new to the project, just a very, very brief overview. The Silmarillion Film Project is not a real film project. Uh, that is to say, we don't have actual aspirations to make a real film. However, uh, this gives us lovely freedom, both in <laughs> freedom from budgetary restrictions uh, and so many other uh, real-life things that would tend to hamper uh, otherwise perfectly good productions. Um the point, of course, of the Silmarillion Film Project is to be thinking through the Silmarillion in interpretive and adaptive ways. Um, I have found that uh, thinking through the Silmarillion in this way, thinking about how we're going to take the Silmarillion and adapt it to a theoretical, long-form, uh, serial uh, uh, TV uh, show... Um, basically, Amazon stole our idea, essentially. We've been doing this for four years now, long before Amazon announced their intentions to do the similar kind of thing uh, with the with the Lord of the Rings. Uh, so, and which, by the way, they're very welcome to do. How you know, I I give them permission. However, uh, uh, this is so anyway. This has been a super fun project, and I have really learned a lot. There have been so many things in the Silmarillion that I've I've really thought about for the first time uh, ever uh, that I've been kind of forced to uh, consider. Um, based on uh, uh, based on what we're, we 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 see here in the text as we try to turn it into the diff- very different kind of story that you have to tell right when you are uh, uh, when you're when you're adapting it into this particular form. Um, so and wait, wait, I see at the last second. Uh, well, okay, somewhat past the last second, uh, I see that one of my co-hosts has been able to make it. She was delayed, but she's here, so I'm going to bring in Trish. Dave couldn't make it today. Normally, of course, I'm joined by Dave Kale and Trish Lambert. Uh, Dave could not make it today, and I was afraid that Trish could not, but now she is here, and soon she shall arrive. No problem. And there she is. Welcome, Trish. Hey, I was like, oh, it's been one of those weeks. And so I was like, oh, Dave and Corey have it, no problem. Then I get on, I'm like, oh my God, he's all by himself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No problem. Uh, no worries. So are you excited for season four? Very excited for season four. Yeah. I am really, this is going to be, this is going to be great. It is. Today we are going to take up an active debate that I've been actively postponing for a while. Okay. You know, there uh, the, the, the can of... comes home to roost. In <laughs> that's words. right. That's right. <laughs> it's time. <laughs> it's time to stop kicking that particular can. Uh, so, you know, we we've done. I don't know what. Like way back in season one or something, we did a, a very vague projection, right, of like what we were going to cover in the different seasons, right. Uh, and we've pretty much stuck to it so far. Um, you know, we, we didn't at the time decide on, like, exact starting and stopping places, but we basically said, okay, you know, season one is going to be the creation of the world and the story of the Valar, and season two is going to be the awakening of the elves up through the rebellion of the Noldor, and then season three is going to be, like, the Feanor show and the, you know, going to Middle-earth and and, uh, and all that and establishing... I hear a butt stuff. coming. 
I hear a butt. Well, no, no, not quite yet. Not quite yet. Cause, and then we said, so they, but this is, of course, we get to the critical junction here, right? Uh, season four, we said, is going to be like, uh, you know, that wonderful, nay, exhilarating opportunity to do a screen adaptation of, of Beleriand and its realms, right? And then season five was going to be Baron and Luthien, right? That right. was that was kind of the... the, the right vague general projection well as we've gotten closer and closer uh to season four um uh you know as, as we, we were working our way last year through season three we uh, like uh, we started hearing more and more grumbles of discontent and resistance to this plan in particular uh the sort of sentiment on the uh, you know from many on the discussion boards and in particular from our uh, our script outline writing team uh has been that there's just way too much stuff there between uh you know the rising of the sun and the uh uh and the the beginning of the Baron and Luthien story to try to squeeze all into one season. And I was, I have been sort of quietly skeptical of that, uh, you know, thinking that we probably could do it. Um, but uh, anyway, so today is the day that we make some decisions about that. What is going to be the scope of season four? Where are we going to start? Where are we going to stop? We don't necessarily have to do an, a full detailed outline today. We, we can come back and review that, um, uh, to sort of hash out the, um, uh, to hash out the, the, the details there, but, um, definitely sort of figuring out the scope and, and what we're going to cover and therefore sort of what's going to be really the central story of season four. I mean, I kind of joke about dramatizing of Balerion and its realms. I mean, of course that's like the chapter, which many people find the most boring chapter in the Silmarillion. And it has been, you know, the, uh, uh, the shoals upon which many unattempted reading of the Silmarillion has been wrecked over the years. Um, so you know, I, you know, hence the joke about uh, you know doing a doing a racy adaptation of that chapter. But of course, there really is a lot that happens in that chapter, and uh, uh, you know, and, and in that whole area. So we'll see. That's what we're going to explore here today, and figure out what we can do. Um, so anyway, so that's that's what we're up to here today. Um, Oh, and uh, uh, my apologies to those. Uh, there is, let's see, Tony, The uh, I'm seeing a question from Tony on Twitter. Um, we are using GoToWebinar, um, but Twitch also works. Um, the GoToWebinar uh, link has been posted somewhere, but only very recently. So that was my fault. Uh, I totally... Uh, I've uh, between the fundraising campaign and traveling to moots and uh, bunches of other things going on. I've been even more absent-minded than usual lately. So I forgot to make that link, but it's, it is made and we are in go to webinar now. Um, but if you can't find it again, Twitch will also work just as well. Um, okay. So, but with that introduction as to what we're going to be doing today, first though, before we get too deeply into that, I do want to, uh, do some announcements, of course, first and foremost, welcome back to the Silm Film Project. Um, and uh, and I would say, by the way, if you're not familiar with the Silm Film Project, it's totally okay to start here. Uh, there's a lot of material in the first three seasons, um, but um, 
you can jump in here without uh, without losing too much. We'll fill you in on stuff that you need, uh, and then you can fill in the backstory there at your leisure. Um, yeah, you can read to catch up in about an afternoon. Right, exactly. Yeah, you can read to catch up with the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not too hard. Um, okay, so um, the uh, a few upcoming things coming up uh, in some cases very soon, such as, for instance, tomorrow, October 13th, which is our sixth annual Signum Webathon. This is the culmination of our annual fundraising campaign, uh, and uh, it's going to be a really great time this year. We're going to be—I'm going to be doing several sort of traditional segments that I usually do, such as my State of the University address, where I'm going to be explaining what's up at Signum University, what are the plans for the coming year. Especially, of course, we're very excitingly in the middle of our credentialing process. We receive program approval from the D- Department of Education here in New Hampshire. Uh, which is a huge, huge hurdle. Uh, And of course, that means the accreditation process is up next, and that's something we're already involved with. So um, that's, I'll be explaining more details about that and what's going on. Um, And uh, also really exciting new things coming up, like some new regional moots we're going to be launching in the next six months, uh, including some pretty exciting destinations, including some outside the United States destinations. Uh, so that's going to be uh, that's going to be super fun. I'm going to talk about our kids program. There's going to be a whole separate segment about the Mythgard Institute because we are expanding and moving forward with the Mythgard Institute in some really fun ways, going beyond what we have done uh, uh, to this point yet. Um, so Mythgard is going to be doing not, you know, nothing's going to change. That is to say, like all the programming that I do for Mythgard, I'm going to keep doing it. Um, but there's going to be an opportunity to to do more in addition, which uh, I've never been able to do. Um, uh, so we'll talk about that. We'll talk about our graduate program. We'll talk. I'll do several special teaching sessions. I'm going to do a session on classic Doctor Who. So Trish, having done the new Who, right? And I did that. Uh, you know, we did. I did a session on that a couple years. Back. Oh wow! I've yeah. recently decided in doing. I'm doing my completionist thing, right? I'm like, I can't take it anymore. I'm going back to season one of Doctor Who and watching it all the way through all the episodes that exist. Um, so I'm in. Uh, I'm coming towards the end of season seven in my watching through. So I'm. I'm. I'm at the the first season of the third Doctor right now, and. Um, I've been so fascinated to see sort of the origins of the Doctor Who mythos, you know? And uh, so anyway, so that's what I'm going to be primarily focusing on. Like, you know, how did we get there from here? And uh, I was so surprised at what I found when I went back to season one uh, in the classic Who uh, that I'm really excited to kind of think that through and talk about that. And uh, uh, Kat Sass, of course, is going to be joining uh, joining me, uh, our sort of uh, resident Signum Doctor Who specialist. uh, And uh, so she's going to be joining me for that conversation. We're also going to have... a special, uh, a special, uh, another special teaching session, uh, in which you're going to get the opportunity to learn some old Norse. So, uh, Paul Peterson, one of our Signum faculty is going to be walking us through some translation. We're going to be, we're going to be looking at a passage of the manuscript, um, of the, uh, 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 uh the, 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 the story of the talking dragon, uh, in the poetic Edda. Uh, and Paul's going to walk us through reading and translating the manuscript. So we're going to see sort of how old Norse works. You get a, get a chance to, um, uh, you know, be one of the coal biters for an hour. Um, the coal biters, of course, the sort of 
Old Norse Translation Club uh, that uh, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien founded. Tolkien was sort of the force behind it, and, and, and Lewis was really enthusiastic about it um, while they were there at Oxford. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to do some coal biting there for, uh, for, for an hour, read some Old Norse together. I'm going to do a teaching session on the fall of Arthur. I've never done that before. I've never really gone through that poem and, uh, and really kind of uh, uh, ta- taught my way through it. So I'm going to do that like a little uh, Mythgard academy one shot uh sort of uh on the uh on the fall of arthur we're gonna do i'm gonna do of course i'm gonna end my day with uh, uh with a lotro session a little sort of mini lotro marathon uh where i'm gonna try to take wigand uh through pilar gear um so anyway that's that's uh, um all these things gonna be happening plus trivia competitions and lots of giveaways and the drawings from our uh from our fundraising campaign and 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 all kinds of stuff so um just uh uh it's gonna it's gonna be a great day it's gonna start at noon on saturday and end much later than that (laughs) um somewhere probably around midnight eastern time or until i collapse face forward onto my keyboard whichever comes first uh so that's going to be tomorrow uh and it's going to be a lot of fun so i hope you'll be able to join me for that and all of these sessions that i'm describing are going to be up on youtube uh after the fact if you miss them or if you're only hearing about this asynchronously and it's already happened uh you can catch all those sessions on youtube as well um the other two things that I wanted to announce more briefly uh, are our two upcoming moots. We have two more regional events going on here in the next few weeks. So we've got LA moot coming up very soon on October 27th. If you're in Southern California, come join us, come meet us uh, in LA moot. Um, this is uh, uh, it's, it's the location is, uh, is right near LAX. It's uh, not too far away. Um, uh, October 27th, as I say, go to signumuniversity.org slash events, uh, and you can see it there uh, and get a link to the registration link there as well as the venue details. Or you can go to lamoot.org and get the information there as well. So I hope, hope all of you Southern California folks will be able to join me there at LA Moot and Magnolia Moot in Charlotte, North Carolina. For all of uh, uh, you folks down in the South, um, uh, okay, I know not everybody is near Charlotte, North Carolina, but there are a lot of people near Charlotte, North Carolina, or driving distance therefrom, who could join us there. Um, we're, it's it's going to be hosted at uh, Johnson C. Smith University in Charlotte, and uh, uh, that's and it's going to be on November 10th, uh, so a few weeks from now. So, um, both the registration for both is open. I, I encourage you if you uh, if you are interested in coming, definitely register. As soon as you can, and I hope to be able to meet many of you at either LA Moot or Magnolia Moot. Just got back, uh, Trish, from Middle Moot this past weekend. I was in Kansas City, which was super cool. I'd never been to Kansas City before, and uh, it was uh, it was awesome. You had barbecue, right? Oh, I remember man. you mentioned you had barbecue. Huh? I had a lot of barbecue while I was there, and it was pretty awesome. I have to say, Trish, like. I kind of like Kansas City barbecue even better than Texas barbecue. Like I know I'm not supposed to admit that. I'm not going to argue with you. No, I know. It's but pretty good. I, I think if Texas would drum me out of the state if I actually gave you my real opinion on Texas barbecue. But anyway, it's. I think the Wonder Bread is what really kind of stopped it for me with the Texas barbecue. <laughs> But anyway, but Kansas barbecue is awesome. It really is. Yeah, Kansas City. It was so good. It was so good. And I had a, um, I had a great, 
had a great time. Awesome group out there. The, so Middle Moot was hosted in Kansas City by uh, the Tolkien Society of Kansas City. Uh, wonderful local uh, fan chapter. Um, Robbie Park is their president, and she was the primary coordinator of the event. And they did just an awesome job. Um, uh doing the doing the conference playing the conference the uh so we were at the we were on the campus of park university in kansas city which is partially underground like we literally had the moot in a cave it was it was like i i didn't even know this until i drove in there and we drove into this tunnel and i'm like oh cool a tunnel like where are we going to come out and the answer is we didn't like we actually like that's where the moot was underground in a cave. I was like, that is awesome. It was so cool. Um, well, see, Tony, it was really, it was, a, it was a little bit dwarvish. I mean, they're definitely like the parking lot looked kind of dwarvish, but you know, it was, it was, it was much more sort of hobbit hole like on the inside, you know? So like it's, um, you know, we were, we were parking in this cave, uh, and then we went, you know, we went inside and there's like, you know, scones and tea <laughs> so i'm like okay no much more hobbit hole like um but yeah no it was it was it was great middle moot was fantastic and i hope people will be able to make it out to our our other um our other upcoming moots exactly in a hole in the ground there was a conference that's just that's just what happened at middle moot tony exactly that all right. I'm glad you went Hobbit Hole because I was thinking Troll Cave. Troll so, Cave? No. no yeah. It wasn't quite like, like you know, that. You could scatter around bones and right, right. treasure. <laughs> right. We could go with that theme later on. You know, like we might we might think about that. You know, uh, uh, have some clothes hanging up that belong to victims and things like that. Right. You know, like it's, it's, right. it's, uh, Especially if we move it a little bit later in October, right? You know, conceivably that could work even better. Um, you could have a scavenger hunt for the swords. That's right. You know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, just serve mutton for lunch. You know, just there nothing but mutton. Um, yeah. Now, the talking purse might be hard to get, but you know. yeah, it's true. But I'm sure we can probably arrange something. Um, you know, as an as an activity, you know, have people find things and then lay curses on them, right? So, you know, I mean, it's it's it would be great. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. It's like traditional. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, all right. So, let us get to the main event here. So, start off with a brief overview. I, I mentioned briefly, but uh, you know, Maria's written up a a really nice. Uh, 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 sort of reminder for us here. Uh, season one, of course, the creation of the world, the Valar were the main characters, and the story is the corruption of Melkor and the meaning of might and leadership and collaboration. Yeah, a lot of focus there on uh, Manwe and Melkor and their very different concepts of you know what leadership means and all that. Um, and especially that you know that the primary drama of season one is the fall of Melkor and sort of the secondary theme there again, coming back to Manway is what do you do in response to that? Right. You know, so first how does Melkor fall and then where does that leave everybody else? And of course we end the season with the war of the powers and the awakening of the elves. We sort of tease the awakening of the elves there at the, at the end of the last episode. Um, 
and you know we have the final the culminating episode episode 13 of season one uh being the war to begin all wars uh and the weeping of manway as he agrees after great reluctance and resistance uh to launch an attack on melkor because it's you know when he does that you know it's it's over and he's contributed to you know the the, the hopes for peace are gone and anyway um I really loved the end of season one. It's still one of my favorite uh, parts. Our planning for that last episode is still one of my favorite parts uh, of the whole film film project so far. Um, exactly, Nick. What can Valar do against such reckless hate? Yeah, something like that. Exactly. Um, so season two, then, we began with the elves. And the overarching theme of season two was the elves finding their home. Like, where do the elves really belong? And this is why the frame story of season two was Arwen in Lothlorien, hanging out with Galadriel and Celeborn and doing some other things. Um, and uh, sort of thinking about the calling of elves to be in Middle-earth, right? Like, what is the role of the elves? What was their sort of purpose, right? What's their job? And, um, you know, what? where should the elves be? Do the elves belong here in Middle-earth? Should they be staying here in Middle-earth, or should they be going um, back to Valinor? Um, so, of course, the the, uh, the the summoning of the elves to Valinor and their long crossing of Middle-earth, uh, and then, of course, what happens when they get back over to Valinor um, is the, was the primary plot there uh, of Season 2. Yeah, with that elvish migration in the first half, and then uh, principally the unrest of the Noldor uh, in the second half of the season. Um, and yeah, the Valar, though we, you know, we, we focused on them exclusively in season one. They do sort of take a back seat in season two, though they're still around and we occasionally, um, you know, come back to them in council or interact with them with the elves. Um, and of course, the culminating episode of season two was the darkening of Valinor and the flight of Melkor. And we had there... Uh, of course, in, in in a sense, in season two, we were able to get a, a, that kind of recapitulation, right? As is so often the case throughout the Silmarillion, right? Indeed, throughout all of Tolkien's works, how we get like a big thing happening and then those same things kind of getting repeated in smaller scale uh, as we go through time. So just as season one really showed the fall of Melkor and what really contributed to his fall and how did he, how did he go about falling, um, season two... Uh, in which, of course, we got to dig into that in very much more detail than the book does. Um, season two, of course, we get the fall of Feanor, um, and uh, the you know, the moment where he, you know, up 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 through the moment, not quite yet the moment of no return, but um, you know, things are looking pretty grim for Feanor uh, and his choices there at the end of. Uh, at the end of season two, his denial of the Silmarils to the Valar and the death of Finway and all that stuff. Um, uh, so that was season two, season three, of course, which we just wrapped up a little while back, um, is as Marie says, split between the rebellion and the fracturing of the Noldor and the establishment of the realm of Doriath and Beleriand. So we have, we start with the kins, you know, with the, 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 the oath and the, the speeches in Tyrion by, uh, by Feanor, the kinslaying. Then we, uh, we shifted over to Beleriand and we, uh, uh, uh established Doriath and, uh, the, the, the arrival of the orcs and the arrival of the dwarves and the arrival of the green elves. So we have all the major players there and sort of working out what things were like when all three of those cultures kind of had three, I'm not counting the orcs as a separate culture there. 
Um, but I guess we could, actually. It is a clash of four cultures, really, um, there in Beleriand. And then, of course, we had the Noldor coming and the burning of the ships. And season three culminates with the awakening, uh, well, with the rising of the sun, the capture of uh, of Mithros and his chaining to the wall, uh, the rising of the sun. And, of course, we end with a teaser of the awakening of men, just as we ended season one with a teaser of the awakening of the elves. So that's the shape of the project so far. One thing I would note, because it's going to be important before too long... We did make some choices in season three where we messed with the chronology some um, because we kind there were a lot of sort of big gaps and things didn't kind of work out easily. Um, so we made some choices, which I still think are fine. I'm still comfortable with them um, uh, to kind of fiddle around with the uh, book chronology in order to uh, help our story. Uh, sort of proceed in a, a, a fashion that's a little easier for people to follow and get behind. There is a chance we might be having to do something similar here in season four, I think. Uh, but we'll uh, talk about that in a little bit. So, season four. Um, some of the overarching story elements, things that we're going to want to consider in season four. Um, so, of course, we need to have the meeting of the Sindar and the Noldor. We were building up to that at the end of season three. So we've sort of promised that very early in season four because we had cured in the shipwright exploring. Um, and we had, uh, uh, Caliborn with him too. Didn't we Trish? Wouldn't we have Caliborn up there? Um, with Kieran? Yeah, we did. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we have them prepared to make contact with the Noldor, but we didn't get them together yet, uh, there in season three. Um, so we're ready for that. We're ready for the encounter of the Sindar and the Noldor. And that's clearly going to be a significant thing, uh, at the very opening, I think of season four. Um, and of course, uh, they're, they're, as Marie says here, their meeting is, will initially be peaceable, but as time goes on, the Sindar will discover the truths the Noldor are concealing about how and why they left Valinor. Quenya will ban, or sorry, Thingol will ban Quenya and shiny jewels. So, um, that's, um, one of the, one of the dramas, right, of this season is not only how are they going to get along and how are they going to establish their realms and, and how are the, you know, the great and mighty among the Noldor going to uh, interact both personally and politically with Thingol, who had kind of established himself here in Beleriand, right? Um, but of course, then there's that, the whole business about the kinslaying and how the kinslaying eventually, come, you know, they, they don't tell him about it at first, even his own uh close kin among the Noldor, uh, that is the children of Finarfin, hide it from him originally, you know, initially, uh, and then he discovers it. So that's obviously one story that we need to, to be dealing with, uh, clearly in season four. Um, the awakening of men, right? Okay. So we, we, we need to bring men into Beleriand and meet the elves, um, and establish them as the allies of the elves and sort of the different houses of men get the different houses of men to their different places in Beleriand so that we're ready to have them when we need them, right? But, of course, we need to think about stories for the men themselves, right? It's not just, you know, kind of moving them around on a risk board, right? We need to to, to be thinking about the stories of those early interactions between elves and men, um, uh, which is 
uh, you know, we've never had this before. So just as we had sort of the Valar and the elves encountering each other and, and kind of trying to understand each other and kind of failing to some extent, actually. Um, so we're going to have the elves and men uh, with some different dynamics among them, and but something clearly um, that is uh, uh, something that we're going to need to be something that we're going to need to be thinking about. Um, and then, of course, we have the war with Morgoth. Um, we're, there are lots of individual things that happen here. This is, I think, in some ways going to be a slightly challenging um, thread to develop and something we're going to need to be thinking about a lot because there are several isolated incidents in the conflict with Morgoth, um, but none of the really major events. Um, you know, there's going to be a couple attacks which will be fought off successfully by the elves and there's the development of dragons right and the uh the, the, that incident when young glaurung uh sort of escapes and runs wild and is chased back into uh angband um by fingen and the horse archers of the noldor um so i mean those are cool events like successful battles and uh the uh brief rampage of Glaurung. But um, unlike the other sort of major campaigns of Morgoth, there's... We're going to have to think about sort of a thread there, right? Um, There's a risk, I think, of our focusing on other stories, right? Like the relationship between the Sindar and the Noldor, the relationship between the elves and the men. And then it's like, and now we interrupt this story to have a random battle. And now there's a battle. And then, okay, now we're done with battles and it's back to siege. Sieges are not exciting, right? Um, And uh, especially sieges that last for centuries. Um, So we definitely need to be thinking about how we, um, how we offer this, you know, how we, how we integrate this with the other stories. Um, my gut feeling right now is that we're going to end up using a bunch of these incidents, the Morgoth related incidents, um, as kind of punctuation for them to kind of bring particular things to a crisis in our other stories, right? As we're developing the relationships among these different people and these different groups, um, uh, there will be, these moments where they're going to have to band together, where they're going to have to coordinate. Um, it, they can be events that can kind of push things along or, or can, as I say, push conflict to a crisis. That seems to me the likeliest, um, the likeliest fate of the Morgoth attacks that are kind of sprinkled throughout this section uh, of the history of Beleriand. The challenge, though, is that we've been working pretty hard in the last couple seasons to have a pretty consistent storyline developing among the bad guys, right? You know, with Morgoth and his sort of slow degeneration, uh, with Sauron especially as our kind of clandestine hero of the entire film film project, right? The one, uh, the one character whose story arc goes from season one all the way through season 20 or wherever we end, right? Um, is going to be Sauron. Uh, it really is, you know, from the fall of Sauron in season one to the fall of Sauron in season 20 or whatever, that's going to be our story, right? So we don't want to lose touch with Sauron in all this. What's he up to? How do we do 
when the bad guys are basically being besieged for the majority of this stuff, what do we do with them? Right. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, um, it's tricky. Yeah. Uh, uh, Zachary Komen says, uh, uh, he's quoting me saying sieges aren't exciting and says, thus the Lord of the Rings movies uh, changed the siege of Minas Tirith into an actual assault, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, pretty conspicuously, I agree. Um, but anyway, so so that's definitely, you know, the, the bad guy plot line, something we're thinking about. We can't lose touch with uh, Sauron, so what's he doing? What's going on in the middle of... Uh, in the middle of this siege activity. Um, so that's going to be a challenge. We get the Ale Arathel story, which is, of course, a wonderful segment. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, that's something we definitely need to do full justice to, I think. Um, because, of course, we get the character of Maeglin, uh introduced there as well, which is not just functionally important for the betrayal later on. Um, but, uh, you know, my Gwen's story is a really compelling one, I think. And this, that whole element and, um, you know, Trish, I know you're a huge fan of Arathel. So, you know, we definitely want to do that story. Oh yeah. Well. The restless elf. Yes. Yeah. I identify with her, you know, and, and I was actually thinking about this. I mean, the next bullet is actual love stories. I was rereading the story the other day of Ale and Arathel, mm-hmm. um, for my thesis, little, little personal marketing there. Um, yeah. yeah. And she actually, you know, we think he did abduct, he did like lure her in, but she stayed of her own volition. So, I mean, there is sort of a, not love in the way we think of it in terms of true love, but she stayed for a long time and actually liked it for a long time. So, Or at least it's not said that she was really unhappy. Right, you know. Right, the, exactly. Like yeah. she was, she was so bored. It was. I mean, I got the. You know, it was like I was thinking. She was so bored. It was like something new, and he was charming, and why not? And they did all this stuff together. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. that could be really interesting to sort of do uh, something with in this season. Anyway, I just obviously it's one of my favorite stories. <laughs> yeah, I agree. It's it's. I haven't even really decided. I mean, I. I'm not sure what we're going to do with it, but I know it's going to be fun to think about because there's so many different yeah. ways we can push it, right? I mean, yeah. we could tell it just as a story of abuse. Um, that's a way that we could do it, you know, or we could try to make it more complicated because uh, I do think, I agree with you, Trish, it is more complicated. The, the narrator is deliciously indirect, Right. Indirect. And yep. how he talks about this. Mm-hmm. Like, it is not said that she was wholly unhappy, you know? Right. Like, exactly. It's, it's like, okay, so what does that mean exactly? You know? Um, I tend to think it's one of those ones where, you know, as long as she was like aligned with him, everything was hunky dory. And then when she sort of gets a little restless and not quite so happy, then his authoritarianism comes through, you know, kind of, it's that kind of story. Yeah. Um, I mean, and the beginning of it is unquestionably creepy and, uh, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I likened it to Hansel and Gretel kind of. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, you it's, know, it's sort of, of like that, except yeah. like sexual. Anyway, it's weird. Like, yeah. I, and, yeah. and of course, uh, I, I can't help but think also of um, uh, the paper that um, uh, that Kate Neville gave that I heard at um, a conference 
a year and a half ago, um, where she was making the argument, which she made really compellingly, that the Aeol and Aerithel story is like the mirror reverse of the Baron and Luthien story. You know, yeah. it's like Baron and yeah. Luthien gone horribly, like reversed and gone yeah. horribly wrong. Um, and I, that's really cool. Uh, you know, I, I think that that's, uh, I, I think she's dead right about that. Um, so anyway. The other thing is, I mean, you look at the other, you know, the actual love stories in the next bullet down. This is the only really dark. Yes. Coupling that we kind of have in Tolkien that I can think yes. of, you know, there's not. Lots of tragedy, but, but yes, yeah. darker than almost anything else. And so therefore uh, certainly a, a really kind of fascinating story that would be fun to, to dwell on uh, in some ways and, and sort of see how we can take that and where we can go with it. Um, so yeah, so that one's cool. And then of course, as you say, in the next bullet point there, the act, we, we need to establish Galadriel and Celeborn, uh, the tragic story of Ignor and Andreth. Um, this, of course, is not in the published Silmarillion. This is drawn from the later writings uh, that he did, um, in particular, of course, uh, the debate between Finrod and Andreth. Andreth being a mortal woman who is a, you know, a, a, a wise woman and a friend of the elves, very highly respected among both humans and elves, but uh, tragically requitedly in love with Ignor. So, like, Ignor loves her back. But they can't marry, and like you know, so he 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 refuses to marry her, and she's still kind of bitter about that. And then, of course, Ignor dies in the Dagor Bregolak. Yeah, that's another big story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and of course, it's this is a this is a, a really interesting one too because it's the only real example that we get of. Elf, man, human, woman romance, right? It almost always it's, this is the this is like the story of the. Uh, you know, sometimes people say, "Well, like, you know, all men marry up in Tolkien, um, except for like you know th- th- that this is a counterexample to that trend." But actually, like it's not a counterexample. Like he refuses to to marry down. You know, like he he won't marry her uh, again. Not because he won't have her, but because you know it's 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 not that he's spur- you know he's spurning her. Um, it's much more tragical than that. Um, but um, anyway, so yeah, I, I I love that story. I love the character of Andreth. Uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, telling that tragic love story. Um, and, uh, yeah, we do get Oradreth, uh, and his marriage to some Sindar woman. I'm not sure if we're, uh, I'm not sure how much time we'll have for that one. Um, that one is certainly the least developed. And of course we have Galadriel and Celeborn, which to be perfectly honest, I'm afraid is going to be boring if we do that one. Like, I was just going to say that of all the ones we have listed here, that's like yawn. I know. Like Galadriel and Celeborn. <laughs> Or like, I, or honestly, honestly. Um, now we could we could have Kelborn be a bad boy. Well, see, to bad I, boys. I gotta tell you, it is so <laughs> tempting to do any number. Of, like I, I'm tempted to misbehave in so many ways in doing the Galadriel and Kelborn love story. Right? Is exploding. <laughs> oh man, there's so many possibilities, um, of which. Doing it in like a normal and stately way seems the most boring of all. You know, just have him oh, like Celeborn yeah. is the prince among the the, the Sindar and Galadriel is oh, the God. you know the great among the the Noldor and then meeting and being like ah uh, you know let us 
ally ourselves. And uh, she placed her hand in his hand. <laughs> yes, they exactly. Were, they plighted I, their trust. I, I just, yeah. Um, <laughs> there, but there are so many. But there's so many possibilities. I can't even. I can't even. Uh, so I don't know. I'm not sure where we're gonna go with Galadriel and Kettleborn. There. Actually, Marie's reaction makes me think we would definitely royal up the fan base. <laughs> I just okay so like I can't decide which would be funnier uh, to have him be like completely subservient from the very beginning oh my um, god or to have uh, to like reverse it in some way so that because I mean like the the thing about Galadriel and Caliborn's relationship is that it's like it's almost impossible to have it really be an equitable relationship. I mean, it's just, it's not equitable in the Lord of the Rings. Oh, there you go. Go Princess Bride, as you wish. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, we'll get into this later, but I would really like to have Caliborn have more of a spine. I would like us to represent him like, you may get a wrong idea of him when you see him in the book or in the movies, but in reality, he's actually got a, you know, he, you know, he does actually have a voice and, yeah, they do have a real relationship. But yeah, anyway. but sort of what it is. I mean, and honestly, like this is something. I mean, I and I'm joking about this, but this is something that Tolkien himself struggled with. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I think it's not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons why. Um, you know, the story of Goadriel and Celeborn went through so many bizarre evolutions, you know, later on in Tolkien's life as he's trying to reconcile it with the Silmarillion tradition, um, yeah. because. It's hard. It's hard to, to to one of the elements of the story that is challenging is how do you tell the story without making go Celeborn her sidekick from the beginning? Like you know, we can't exactly have their betrothal ceremony be like you know. And will you take me to like ride in your little motorcycle sidecar you know throughout the rest of your exalted and glorious career? Like, I mean, that's it's well, tough. You know, and I'm really looking forward to when we talk about this in greater detail. Marie does make a good point. We've seen this character since Quivianon, so he should have agency in the story, and I agree with that. I agree yeah. with that. Um, you know, and Phil makes a good point. It's like, you know, he's so wise, he doesn't worry about people underestimating him, although how you show that on screen is... That's it, yeah. Like, know. exactly. The, the character who is, like, kind of inferior, but he's so wise that he's down with that, is still hard to get behind, <laughs> you know, it, on screen. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, but... something, okay, so everybody keep this in the back of your minds and mull it over. When we get to this uh, episode, we'll have lots of fun with it. Oh, wait, Zachary Komen is completely right. He says we should do a love triangle because it worked so well in the Hobbit movies. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. actually, it made me think, should we show that she already has an affinity for dwarves? In- <laughs> <laughs> no. No, we shouldn't. <laughs> Speaking of Hobbit love triangles, you know, like, as soon as I actually said the phrase Hobbit movie love triangles aloud, I will be honest with you, that thought very briefly flashed. Like, that was the thing that it made me think of. And I instantaneously... And it explained like, was so, like, friendly to Gimli, right? Yeah, I barely, even, I barely even recognized it. Like, I didn't even acknowledge it before I beat it on the but head you, with a hammer. You know, right? I can, yeah. you can count on me to actually say it out loud. So. I'm yeah. here for <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Though, I mean, in seriousness, 
It would be. I mean, we know that she is going to have sketchy Hobbit movie parallels aside. Um, we know that she is going to have a positive relationship with the dwarves. Mm-hmm. That she is going to mm-hmm. be the one who's going to be reaching out to the dwarves of Casa Doom and is going to be really instrumental right. in the friendship between mm-hmm. the elves of uh, of uh, of you know b- between the Noldor of Eregion and uh, and the dwarves of Casa Doom. So establishing Goadriel's. Uh, friendship with understanding of the dwarves in this season might actually not be a bad idea to start um, it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because then it would explain when you get into the point where she meets Gimli, she, cause you, you have that already kind yeah. of in the book. There's already this, this like underpinning of her understanding of the dwarves. Right? right. So we would need to, anyway, we're getting a little off. Phil Boswell brought up a good point. Although I don't know that we can do this uh, when the time comes. I'd like to see the conversation where Galadriel tells Celeborn about the kinslaying from her point of view. Yes. Yes. It'd be really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That would be really, especially if the, you know, since the primary drama is going to be between um, like uh, <laughs> Finarf and Sons and, and Thingol, right? Yeah. I'm sorry. Karita says she has a large poster with an attractive bearded person in her room. <laughs> <laughs> and Marie, Marie makes a good point. Gladra can write him off when they first meet. Like, uh, you know, he has nothing to say. He's just yeah. a poofy old right. elf. Right. And gradually come to appreciate him over time. Yeah. Right. We just have to figure out what she appreciates him for. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're so bad. I'm, I'm sorry. So it's bad. just hard. It's. I mean... I, it's just hard. Poor Kelleborn, right? I mean, like... You have to give up. I know this is years and years and years of your attitude about Kelleborn, but you got to give it up. you yeah. got to, like, start fresh. It's true. <laughs> it's true. This is our... This is our... This is our chance to... To, um... You Re- know... Redeem him. Redeem him. We'll redeem exactly. Him. Redeem yeah. Kelleborn. We'll make that a bumper sticker. Redeem, redeem Kelleborn. Kelleborn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, um... It's... It's... Yeah, no, it's true. Though, I mean, again, this is really, it's one of the fun challenges, right? I mean, it's as we're undertaking in several ways, one of the things which is sort of, you know, quietly this sort of extremely daring work that we're doing, right, is we're not only undertaking to sort of flesh out some stories that Tolkien didn't flesh out himself, we're actually undertaking to solve some problems that Tolkien himself never successfully solved, you know, um, the of course, the problem of the origin of orcs is one of the th- those things that we've already been wrestling with. Um, and so, you know, in order to tell a coherent story ourselves, we have to do the work that essentially prevented the publication in Tolkien's life, which was how to go back from from where he was standing, you know, in the late 60s and early 70s um, with, a, you know, all of the Lord of the Rings done and all this other further development of the of the mythology that that led to and going back to all the early material and fitting it out, making a one cohesive story out of the whole lot. That's the thing that... Um, you know, that's the the project that the Silmarillion was kind of beached on, right? You know, in Tolkien's lifetime and why it never came safely into harbor until he had died. And Christopher Tolkien basically took up the work. And by the way, it's not just a question of like, and then the younger, you know, his son stepped in and like uh, accomplished what his father couldn't accomplish. In a sense, like Christopher just punted 
on it almost <laughs> you know i mean like basically the difference between tolkien's inability to publish the silmarillion and christopher's ability to publish it is just that christopher was willing to let go stuff that tolkien wasn't willing to let go like he wasn't willing to just stick with like okay let's take that most of what i wrote there in 1937 and use that with a few em- emendations that's a you know that's a very crude characterization of what the public silmarillion is right um Whereas Tolkien was like, no, like I've got to, you know, I want to, I want, I'm not, I, Tolkien wasn't content to put Goadriel into like three separate paragraphs sprinkled throughout the Silmarillion, which is what Christopher did, right? He wanted to be like, no, 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 she needs to be an organic part of it from the beginning. So I got to rewrite the whole thing with Goadriel's part in it, for instance. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah, so we're doing it. We're doing it. We're, ne- we're doing it. The whole, we're we're do- we're trying to do what Tolkien wanted to do, but never did. So uh, that's uh, not that, of course, that we're claiming that we're doing exactly what <coughs> Tolkien would have done. But again, as far as it's it's not that our answers to the questions are going to be necessarily the same as Tolkien's would have been. But well, we're actually goodness, trying to answer even the Tolkien questions. didn't do it the way Tolkien would have done it because he wrote <laughs> like I was reading Baron Luthien the other day, and I'm like, okay, there's like okay, now I'm in version four. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Even when you talk about how Tolkien would have done it, it's like in what Which year Tolkien? and in what mood? Uh, what yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, even that's a really complicated question. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, uh, so I agree. Lots to talk about there. Oh, and I missed. Uh, I didn't mention before Marie's comment, which I think is right, Marie. I think we can do it in this sense uh, to have the uh, the marriage of Orodreth, um uh, be kind of a, a part of the Noldor Sindar interaction story, right? Um, to have them be kind of the representatives of the, yeah, that's a good like idea. the, you know, the initial league, uh, between them. Uh, I think that, that, that certainly is, that's, uh, would be sort of lovely symbolism. And of course we have new characters. We need to introduce, uh, the awesome Gondolin boys, Gorfindel and Ixthelion. Um, <laughs> Yay, Gorfindel. God, I got two of my favorite characters in this season. I awesome. Know. Yeah, yeah. Arathel and Gorfindel. I mean, there you go. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, And of course, the character of Oradreth, whom we've kind of held off on to this point, um, including Marie, didn't we hold off on deciding whose child Oradreth is as well? You know, there's one he's one of those characters that whose genealogy Tolkien changed at various points. Um, am I right in remembering that we punted that question too? Yes, we did. Okay. So we need to decide <laughs> who even Oradreth is. Right. Um, uh, so that's certainly something that we'll get to do and that'll be fun. Um, so yeah, oh, we've Tony got a good question. Do we want to hint at the origin of hobbits as an offshoot at any point? Probably not. We're not really – we're still Noldorin here, aren't we, pretty much? Yeah, I don't think we're there yet. Um, I think that if we did it, I'd want to do it in the Second Age, especially since, yeah. you know, like what's happening in Middle-earth in the Second Age is, is uh, you know, like among men is not that much, so – I'd want to put it there if we put it anywhere. Though I have to admit, um, uh, Tony, I have no idea what to say about that. You know, it's a big question, um, the origin of hobbits. Uh, We were talking about this a little bit actually at Middlemoot um, because it's not obvious. Like, is it an evolutionary thing, right? I mean, are we going to – are the hobbits just a – 
as they seem to be tied to men that is like ontologically speaking right they seem to that you know they, they seem to be mortal like men and 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 to you know to share the fate of men so presumably they are of the you know the second born children of Iluvatar, broadly speaking right so how do they get the way they are did it just slowly over time so therefore, are we going to imagine like a halfway stage, right? Are, 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 are we going to have like the Hobbit missing link, right? The the group of people who are like four feet tall, right? And then, you know, what, thousands of years later, they're now three feet tall. You know, I mean, like, do, is, do, we, do we do that? Do we go there? Um, or is there some other intervention, you know, uh, like inter, in, intervention of the Valar and the actual like creation of the um, of the hobbits you know i don't know how to do that origin story really um because tolkien never we never even get a whiff of it um in the lord of the rings so i don't really know now you're right uh robert uh and marie are both mentioning uh the the droogs um the pukelmen the uh druidon um who are also a similar kind of they're human but they're different um and also not explained exactly the origin and how they came to be. Because they not only are uh, sort of physiologically distinct, um, not quite as distinct as hobbits, but in the same direction. Um, hey, maybe they're the missing link. But anyway, um, uh, they, but then having, you know, they have like powers of, you know, the whole things that they do with statues. And, uh, you know, it's different. It's very strange. There's no other humans that have powers even vaguely like that, as far as we can see. So there seems like there has to be an explanation uh, for that. Uh, so anyway, whether we do any of that, whether we just leave it a mystery and be like, and suddenly there are hobbits, which would be totally justifiable from uh, from the text. I don't really know. But um, anyway, those are – but I think that – I think that the hobbits, at least, I'm content to leave until the Second Age. We do need to deal with the droogs at some point in season, uh, not, not, not in a particular season. I'm not going to tie it down to a particular season, but sometime in the First Age, we do need to introduce the droogs because um, uh, we know that they're, they're around here in Beleriand. So, so yeah, we'll, we'll kick the hobbit can way down the road. Um, but we will need to think about the Druidon. And so, so some of those questions are going to be relevant there too. Um, where did they come from? Why are they different? Uh, and all that kind of thing. But anyway, but I'm not going to worry about that for season four, because I do not think that that is a season four question or may, unless it is <laughs> Never mind. I'm not going to worry about it right now. Um, the petty dwarves meme. So we need to do meme in the petty dwarves. This is something that we were talking about last season and setting up, um, but we didn't really get there, uh, and we decided to save that for this period. Of course, especially focused on the discovery of um, um, of uh, what's it called, Nargothrond, <laughs> right? Um, so. Yeah, yeah, and obviously we need to set up meme in the petty dwarves before Turin meets them. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. So, so, yep. Yep. That needs to happen. Um, we need to, of course, bring men in. Uh, we need to, to reintroduce Aeol, right? He's a new character. 
um, you know, all the men, of course, all the humans are new characters uh, that we're going to be bringing in. Uh, and, uh, and, and yes, Aeol is reintroduced because he was a character way back in episode three of season one. Uh, that is the great debate at Quivienen about whether or not to go with the Valar or not. And of course, Aeol was one of the, we, we made him an Avari, right? We made him one of the unwilling from the beginning and he's going to have wandered out here. So he's separate. Did I say, what did I say? Season, no, anyway, season two. Did I say one? Sorry. Season two. Episode three of season one of season two. Yeah. So we had decided that he was going to be one of the Avari. Um, uh, and he was really one of the spokespeople for the Avari in that debate. But it's been a while now. It's been two seasons since we've seen him. Um, and we flirted with Aeol in season three, trying to decide whether we wanted him and Thingol and the Nan Elmoth situation. Um to come in into season three. Ultimately, we decided to postpone that to season four, and I'm really glad that we did. Um, I, 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 I now am uh, very enthusiastic about that particular postponement because I think introducing Aeol as a setup for starting the story with Arathel seems like um, it, just better to keep that compressed, I think, into one spot, so I'm much happier with that. All right, so those are some of the big things that need to be covered in season four. With that in mind, let's do a quick review. Very grateful to Marie for making this up for us um, of the timeline of the first stage, just so that we can review events. And, and as I'm going through this, I'm thinking in my head of uh, like, OK, what's going to make an episode? Right. And where are there places where we might have to mess with the timeline? Right. Those are the those are things that I'm thinking of here. So, OK. First age one. The first age, of course, is the first age of the sun, technically. So it begins at the, right here at the beginning of season four as the sun rises and men awake in Hildorian. Um, this leads us, of course, already to our first question. Are we going to deal with men before they cross over the Blue Mountains and enter Osirian and get discovered by Finrod and have their unfriendship with the Green Elves. That's when men come into the stories of the Silmarillion, and they only have vague legends and kind of um, cryptic senses that something happened before. We know there is a fall of mankind, which Tolkien depicted twice, um, once in quite some detailed, uh, uh, quite some detail as a narrative, actually. Um, and it's very, it's very Edenic. That is, it's, it's very Garden of Eden. Um, uh, so, yeah, we do know, we do know some, we do know some backstory, right? We do know some backstory. Do we want to do that? Um, my inclination is that we don't want to do that. Um, I think that we should... I think that what happened... I think it's more effective if what happens with the men remains just sort of stories that they tell and that can, and can be vague and uncertain stories. Um, but, Marie, I agree it does tie into the what is Sauron up to question. Um, and having the bad guys consulting, right, with each other about the awakening of men and deciding... Uh, of course, it's famously mentioned as one of the times, one of the very few times when Melkor himself goes forth from Angband, is to go off and corrupt the men. So um, how do we have this working, especially in the context of the relationship between Sauron and Morgoth? Um I'm not really sure there. Um, I still think that maybe we don't show it happening. Um, uh, 
especially if the arrival of men is still somewhat delayed. Um, anyway, that is to say, if we ha- if we're able to have conversations between Sauron and Morgoth nearer to the beginning, and then we don't really know what comes of it, and then when the men come over, they're telling stories, which we would be able to, which the elves would be able to kind of parse in general, and we would know even more detail about, because we would remember that conversation between Morgoth and Sauron, um, so that we would be able to just kind of conclude what must have happened without ever actually narrating that story in detail might be kind of a fun way to to handle it, but um yeah and Tony, I also am kind of tempted to have somebody to have have somebody in uh, in serpent or in dragon form, um, maybe dragon form. Right? I'm thinking, of course, of this uh, as Tony is of the serpent uh, in the Garden of Eden. And wouldn't it be fun to actually tie that to the conception of dragons, like the the, the beginning of the development of dragons, to do the whole the whole worm thing um, there? That'd be kind of interesting, actually. I'm kind of liking that, but I'm not sure how it would work. But anyway, um, okay, so we can sort out the details there later, but, but I agree we have to get some bad guy narrative there, um, about the awakening of men, especially since they're aware of them first. The, they, the elves don't discover them until much, much later, at least not the Noldor. Um, yeah, anyway, okay, all right, so more, more thoughts on that later. Uh, the first major event, though, clearly is, uh, the what happens next, right? The rescue of Mithros. Um, I've always been kind of assuming um, that the rescue of Mithros from Thangarodrim would be episode one of season four, having just stapled him to the wall. We could leave him there for an episode and do that in episode two. Um, but my fear would be if we did that, um, that it would make episode one really dull, right? Episode one would just be like, and now the new exciting season of Silmarillion film project, um, people talking to each other a lot in episode one, like that's kind of all that would happen. Right. So I I think we should do, um, I think that we should do the, 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 the meeting there. So I'm kind of thinking, um, Basically, everything that's described in year five, uh, Fingon rescues Mithros from Thangarodrum, Fingolfin becomes High King of the Noldor and Beleriand. I'm thinking that's episode one, basically. Um, that we get, we start the episode with the tension between uh, the the uh, those who cross the Helcaraxa and between the Feanorians, and then Fingon goes off and he rescues Mithros, and then they come back and the tension is resolved. So that, that seems to me like... Episode one, is that a lot to do in one episode? Yeah, kind of, but I think we can do it. Um, so that's, that's, that's kind of my initial reaction, you know, to the opening here. Um, and again, there I'm kind of cheating. Like that I've been kind of thinking of since last year when we were planning the other stuff. Um, now, then immediately after that, we start in with the stuff with the Sindar, right? And this, again, I think we can kind of compress in some ways... Um, in the sense, again, to have sort of the tension and at least the temporary resolution happen relatively quickly. So I'm thinking episode two, perhaps, is, 
you know, Thingol granting permission for the Noldor to occupy the Northlands, right? And their responses being like, uh, okay, thanks for your permission, Thingol, right? Um, but we culminate uh, uh, episode two with the Feast of Merith Adarthad, that is, you know, the, 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 the Feast of Union there um, uh, that the Sindar and the Noldor have. And we can show how this is, on the one hand, the establishment of peace and and, and alliances, but we can show the tensions not so very far beneath the surface there, right? Um, uh, so, anyway, that's, that's, uh, um, that seems to me like something we could do in a second episode. So, all right, so we're at two episodes, 20 years and two episodes, that's not so bad. Um, now, the next thing, of course, is the visions. Olmo grants visions of hidden places to Finrod and Turgon. Um, this is when we begin of Beleriand and its realms in earnest, right? We start establishing who's in what city and what's going on. Um, so, of course, we have uh, then Finrod discovers Nulu Kizdin, uh, these, uh, and we have to figure out how exactly the petty dwarves are involved there and to what extent, um, you know, how well to be blunt about it. How colonial is the founding of Nargothrond, right? I mean, is there, in fact, a native question in the establishment of Nargothrond, right? Were the petty dwarves there and Finrod kicks them out? Does he make a deal with them? Are they not there anymore? How do we do that? I mean, Meme is going to remember this, right? He's going to remember this. Uh, in his mind, this is the petty dwarves being ill done by. Um, to what extent is he justified is a question that we need to make. So the establishment of Nargothrond kind of a big deal and an opportunity for us to do a bunch of dwarf stuff there, right? With the background of the petty dwarves and everything. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, exactly. Marie, somebody, uh, kicks out the petty dwarves, but it isn't necessarily Finrod. It could be other dwarves. It could be Thingol. Um, we could get orcs involved. We'd have to see what we wanted to do there. Um, but yeah, I'm thinking, you know, one of the questions is, because of course the dwarves contribute very little to this segment of the Silmarillion. I mean, we get very little of the dwarves and of Beleriand and its realms. Um, but of course we spent a fair bit of time building up some fairly cool stories and some new characters among the dwarves. We don't just want to leave them behind completely. Uh, so keeping touch with the dwarves again, I think that the, the Nargothrond story gives us an opportunity uh, to um, uh, to think about the dwarves uh, and to make contact with those stories. And of course, at almost the same time as Nargothrond is being founded, Gondolin is being founded by Turgon as he discovers it and he starts the like top secret building of Gondolin and then the secret sneaking of an entire people uh, into the Hidden Valley. Um, that'll be fun to try to talk about. Uh, then next bursts in one of those battle, the sort of random battles that break out, right? The Dagor Aglareb, the glorious battle, um, which is just an attack, like the orcs pour out again from the gates of Angband, um, and they are, like, contained and then annihilated uh, by the elves all working together. So, you know, Dagor Aglareb is like what the Near Nith Arnoidiad wanted to be, right, but failed to be. Um, So, that actually is, I think, uh, a thing that we want to build on, right? We want to uh, do a little bit of work in the glorious, you know, in the Dagor Aglareb to set up 
the near ninth Arnoidiad later on, because um, that correspondence I think is 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 pretty clear. Um, so anyway, that's um, uh, but like I said earlier on, these battles, you know, these random uh, interventions of orc armies are things that we're going to need to you know place in the context of the larger stories of of individual characters and of larger and the interactions of 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 larger people groups that we're going to be getting through this season so we don't want it just to be like and now for a battle and of course at that same time uh the fortress of Minas Tirith uh is constructed uh by Finrod Felagant um uh so that's going to be uh, th- that's of course going to be very important in the Baron and Luthien uh, sequence, and also of course with future Sauron connections, as it's going to be Sauron who's going to take Minas Tirith uh, and uh, turn it into a place of dread and darkness until he gets kicked out of it by Luthien and Huon. Okay, then Turgon removes his people from Nevras to Tumladen and constructs Gondolin. And Brithambar and Eglarest are constructed. Hey, hey, so we're rebuilding on the coastlines, right? Um, so we've had 65 years of Círdan the shipwright doing nothing, right? We've got to think about Círdan and his role and what his people are doing, especially since, essentially, based on what we had happen in Season 3, they just kind of need to rebuild, right? Um, so we need to think about them and their role here. Um Okay, uh, then we've got uh, the things come to a head between the Sindar and the Noldor there with Thingol learning about the Silmarils, Thingol learning about the Kinslaying, um, and uh, that going badly. Then, what? 35 years later, Nargothrond is completed, and then Gondolin is completed after that. So notice we have like 50 years, right, or ish, of building Nargothrond and Gondolin. Um, this is where I start getting worried about timeline, to be perfectly honest, right? Uh, because that gap in time, um, we have two options, it seems to me, right? Um, it's going to be a little bit hard for us to convey, and then 50 years passed in which nothing much happened, right? I mean, we can have that happen between episodes. It's not like it's impossible, but... Um, it's it's going to be a bit of a challenge in some ways, I think. Uh, to We can overtly jump forward, um, but it's going to be hard. I mean, you know, Marie, I know one of the objections that you've raised in the past is um, we don't want to make Arathel look like she gets bored the minute the gondolin is finished, right? We make her look merely fickle if we do not convey the passage of time that she has been with the rest of the gondolindrum essentially locked into Tumladen, right? Um, so we need to convey the passage of time there in Gondolin, and yet, famously, nothing is happening in Gondolin uh, pretty much the whole time. So that's where things get a little bit tricky. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, and... Uh, yeah, no, like, I totally agree that, you know, working on, on, uh, like, Nargothorn and Gondolin are 
major public works projects, right? I mean, these are these are. I'm not questioning the amount of time that it took. Uh, it, sure, that's fine. That makes sense to me. Um, but um, I, I'm just uh, I'm just thinking how it fits into our story. Um, cause yeah, I agree, Marie, even if we put like 50 years later on the bottom of the screen, that doesn't help how it feels to the audience. I think I always find that very, uh, um, very unsatisfying. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, we could invent some events, you know, Nick, like, you know, the politicking amongst the Nolder and Lords, as you suggest, uh, there's plenty to do there. I mean, we, we, we got some stuff with the fan orients and everything. I'm just, I don't want to invent, you know, like game of Thrones style political intrigue for the sake of political intrigue. Like I don't want political intrigue to be the plot, to be the theme, you know? Um, uh, I'm not anti, you know, politicking in general. I mean, that's in one sense, right? Just another way of characterizing the interactions among these characters, right? And the differences among these different people whom we've been trying to flesh out and develop, especially we did a lot of work with the Feanorians last year um, and with the children of, uh, well, at least, some of the children of uh, Finarfin and Fingolfin uh, to try to sort of understand and establish different characters and personalities for them and everything. So just sort of showing them acting with and against each other is just another way, you know, in one sense, it's just another way of sort of continuing to extend that work. But at the end of the day, I don't know. I I, I don't... find it in itself a compelling end, right? Like, okay, like a a compelling goal uh, for the season, right? So, like, there is, uh, there are personal disagreements among the Noldor. It's like, well, okay, you know, whatever. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, no, I know, Nick, that you're not thinking of actual Game of Thrones style anything. I'm not trying to accuse you of that. There, I'm not, I'm not thinking of any of the other elements of Game of Thrones that people might object to, but simply the fact that it is a story which is intensely interested in politics. Like at the end of the day, big chunks of that, of the, the that that's it's a political story. You know, in many in, in in many ways, even more than it's a military story, uh, in some ways. So, like if if you're not into political machinations, you're unlikely to like the Song of Ice and Fire very much. I mean, that's just kind of the kind of story it is. That's what I mean, that I'm not sure that, you know, merely the kind of jockeying for position and the the, the conflict of people in power is not really the subject matter. You know, that's not like the, not exactly subject matter. I'm not sure that that's like the, the palette I want to be painting with, if you see what I mean. But, you know, the part of storytelling is conflict, right? I mean, you know, sort of the classic pattern. And, I mean, like, you know, uh, Tony points out they're not human. They're elves. So what would elvish conflict look like? I don't... I don't necessarily think know that it would be political because political is about power, power and hierarchy, and they don't really seem to have 
really a hierarchy or there's like a lot of agreement into the hierarchy. Nobody really you know, has an issue. So I don't know what their conflicts would be. I mean, we, I think we need some sort of conflict, but I'm not sure disagreements about right. we could make some. what to for dinner. Yeah, well, no, but it's some. I mean, we can make, we can definitely make some more of the conflicts there. I'm not too worried about that. But, okay. But, but you're right, and Tony's very right to remind us of this. You know, like there's no. The thing about Elvish politics is that like everybody's playing the long game, right? You know, it's it's not. Um, uh, you'll notice how f- like few Elven coups there are, like. Two, right? One, right. Yeah. Su- one temporarily successful and one not successful. So, like, there are those kinds of machinations, but they just they don't happen all that often. Uh, Do we have? Is it in this season that we'll have Fingal outlying Noldor? Noldoran? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what happens with that in terms of people's reactions and elves' reactions and yeah. that. Yeah, and, and and I am inclined to agree with uh, with Marie here that we want to focus less on infighting and more on the culture clash right. uh, between right. the, the Sindar and the I Noldor. Um, yeah, and of course we have that sort of qualified by um, the uh, the individual personalities involved on both sides, right? right. Um, uh, so you know we have the opportunity, just as of course is in fact happens in the book, right? Like with uh, uh, you know. Caranthir being a jerk all over the place. Uh, all right. Right. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and we can see Thingol being jerk. His jerkiness can come to the fore in this season. Yeah. 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 Um, so, no, I mean, there's definitely, we will definitely do, you know, the the sort of struggle between the Nold, not struggle, but conflict between the Noldor and the Sindar is in some ways, of course, a political struggle. But but again, keep in mind, uh, just as a sort of a glimpse, I think, of what Tony is talking about. Um, remember what the Noldor do in the book when Thingol forbids the use of Quenya anywhere. Like, I'm going to forbid your language, right? And what do they do? Nothing. Right, like they just take that. They're like, well, okay, you know, let's. Uh, we're kind of to to blame for the kinslaying. You know, it's kind of a fair cop, and uh, uh, let's not make waves. So you know, we'll. But I mean, it's there's what looks like a, a like a you know what could be taken easily from Thingol as a kind of throwdown, right? With the Noldor, and the Noldor just kind of back away from it. Right and don't make waves. Um, again, long game. Right, they're not bothered so much, uh, you know, by a lot of these things like humans are. Um, but anyway, now I agree, Marie. We can definitely complicate that. Um, uh, as Marie says, I can't imagine the Feanorians comply with that entirely. No, I agree, and uh, you know, and so we can sort of show a more. Uh, um, complicated reaction to that. But again, and, you know, Marie, again, you you mentioned earlier, and I totally agree, before we can really resolve how far we want to go into these things and where we want to go with these things, we need to sort out what are the major interests, what is the major storyline, the major themes of season four. Once we get that settled, uh, then we can fit these conflicts and stories into it um, and the sort of 
political issues. Um, I'm just myself not. I would not want the, this kind of story. The like, how are the Noldor positioning themselves in relationship to each other? Um, you know, what's the political situation between the Noldor and Thingol? We need to establish that. And it can be a really cool and fun and character developing thing, but I'm not real excited about taking up the bulk of a season on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, you know, I don't know. Uh, maybe that's just a personal preference on my part. Um, but that just doesn't sound to me super exciting. I want to do, I want to do more. I want to, I want to do other things. I want to, um, and I don't just mean I want more action and less talking. It's, it's not, it's not that simple. It's not about action versus not action. It's about what kind of action we want. Like the, you know, going back for a second, um, to, uh, the stories we were talking about before, I want to do more Ale and Arthel. I want to do more Ignor and Andreth. You know, I want to even playing around with Gohadro and Celeborn wherever we go with that, right? Um, you know, I want to do more Sauron and Morgoth. Like those are, I, those stories are to me, um, you know, doing doing that stuff is to me much more interesting than like political stuff. Just thinking about like who's in charge and and, and yeah, uh, you know. I agree. Who's going to be obeying whom? And anyway, yeah. So, um, so that's. I, they can be really good stories, and we should totally do it. Um, but I am, uh, I'm, I'm. I think we can do it in a. I would hope that we could do it in a, a comparatively few episodes, or spread out. You know, among uh, so. As of course happens in the Silmarillion, where we kind of come back to it at you know after some more time has passed and other things have happened, and you know the next revelation comes, and then we sort of come to a political crisis um, and have those intersprinkled with the other things that are going on. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, uh, okay, let's see. Let's um, let's keep going through the outline here. Okay, so, right, we're completing Argathron and Gondolin. Uh, Caranthir meeting the dwarves of the Blue Mountains. Okay, so we get an opportunity to do the dwarves again. This time, uh, in their interactions with Caranthir, specifically the Fanorians in general. Um, so we have another angle on the dwarves, and this time, sometime later, of course, uh, by the chronology, it's 50 years, or 100 years later, essentially, um, from the uh, Nargothrond issue, um, so we can come back to the dwarves again. We clearly need to brainstorm what is the... what are the overarch... What, what's the story? What's the dwarf story? Because we have to invent the dwarf story, essentially. You know, I mean, this is... This is we, we've got we've to go more or less from scratch on the dwarf story. So is there going to be a story? Are the dwarves going to do something? Right? You know, I'm not really, uh, I'm not really sure how that's gonna. Uh, are we gonna make them only sort of done in reference to the other stories that we're doing? Like they, you know, they're consulted by, you know, the other characters at some point, or do we have an independent dwarf story? Um, I'm not really sure how much time we have for that, but maybe. Uh, and let me say, when I say I don't know how much time we have for that. Um, 
this doesn't mean I'm trying to rush through everything. To me, the really big question is, do we, how much do we want to add? You know, how much we could, we could spend four seasons, you know, in this section if we wanted to. The question is if we want to, how much, how much material are we wanting or willing to just flat make up from scratch? Right. So if there's a storyline of what's happening with the dwarves, we're going to be making that up from scratch. Right. We have no idea what's going on with the dwarves. Um, No, I think we could do that. Right. I think that we could um, have sort of the story of the petty dwarves. Right. That to me, that the petty dwarves seem like the most obvious hook for some dwarvish thing or other happening in this season. Um, How we integrate the story of the petty dwarves and the interaction between the petty dwarves and the primary dwarves. Right. Um, The non petty dwarves. Uh, how we how we how we develop that and how we work that in with the overall elvish story and human story, not totally sure, um, but I think we could do that. That seems to me the best option there. Um, okay, then we have Glaurung coming out and getting defeated and having the beginning of the long uh, peace. Oh, and that's of course after um, orcs attack Hithlum and that sort of flanking action that they do around from the north in that in their defeat, which is not considered one of the great battles. Um, so we get another little piece of, uh, of Morgoth action. Again, one of the things that we need to make sure we don't leave behind is what's behind these, right? Like whose idea was that? Is this, is this a failed Gothmog initiative, right? Is this a failed Sauron initiative, um, the, you know, the, the attack on Hithlum, um, is this a failed Morgoth initiative, right? How, whose fault is this, right? Who's, uh, who's in the doghouse for, uh, you know, the, the failure of the orc attack, uh, on Hithlum, um, not to mention the failure at the Dagor Aglareb, uh, from the bad guy's standpoint, um, you know, how is this shifting the balance of power, the balance of influence, or, you know, the, the, the kind of trajectories of the main bad guy characters? Um, Hakon thinks it's Bulldog's fault. Yeah, well, we do need to, uh, uh, we, ne- we do need to kill off Bulldog at some point. Um, we need to decide when Bulldog dies. I'm not sure when Bulldog dies. Hey, did... Did I suggest this before? I'm thinking of this now like I'm thinking of it for the first time, but I'm having one of those... I'm having one of those moments where I like can't remember if I've actually thought of this before. <laughs> um, we could have Bulldog killed by Hurin in the Fens of Serek. Bulldog could be leading the charge against the men of Hithlum, uh, you know, the men of Dorloman, as they are doing the rear guard action. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, or by Turin, Tony. We could, we could use Turin to kill Bulldog, which would establish his, uh, his street cred a little bit more, right? Uh, yeah, Turin is a little bit late, I agree, Marie. Um, I'd kill Bulldog off during the um, 
Oh, and 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 I know that um, Phil uh, in the Lay of Lathian it talks about Bulldog's death, but Bulldog's death happens off screen in that, right? Like I I I, I want to feature it uh, if we're going to have Bulldog as a character here. Um, I'd put it in the Baron and Luthien story, but I'm not sure where, you know, because um, if we have him, I feel like he has to either die. If if he dies during the Baron and Luthien story, it would either have to be somewhere around um, uh, 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 the, you know with where like either with Sauron and his people, right, or in Angband with Morgoths. And if he's like if he if he's down with Sauron, he's undermining, or he's going to be undermined by being Sauron's flunky, or if uh, it's in Angband, well, well, that's Karkaroth's job. What's he doing in Angband, right? So, um, so yeah, that's why, Tony, I was thinking more towards Unnumbered Tears. I was kind of thinking about uh, the Fens of Serek uh, to have uh, Hurin's, Huor and Hurin's final stand be even more epic. But a random idea, which I can't remember if I've had before. Um, Nick says that that idea has come up before, right? So, Nick, do you mean somebody else had that uh, awesome idea or that I've had that awesome idea? I can't even remember. Uh, um, I don't think I remember hearing it before. But anyway, ooh, maybe Myglin could kill him? Ooh, that would be interesting. In the Battle of Unnumbered Tears. Yeah, that would be interesting. Well, we'll see. In any case, not yet. Um, Okay. But wait, there's more. There's still another two centuries. After this, we get the, the, uh, the entrance of men into Beleriand, right? So after all of, uh, all of these... Yeah, I agree, Mary. We'll decide that Bulldog will sur- survive season four and move on. Um, so after all this stuff, right, the establishment of the kingdoms and the tension between the Sindar and the Noldor and maybe some kind of dwarf story uh, and two attacks by Morgoth, uh, then we get men coming in. Um, uh, they enter Beleriand and are discovered by Finrod. Um, uh, and then, of course, we get the, we get the, 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 the Haladin coming and the people of Marech coming a little bit after that. So we get the three different kindreds um, of men uh, coming into Beleriand. This is then when Arathel leaves Gondolin and weds Ale. So the Arathel and Ale story is after all this. We get the birth of Maeglin. Um, we got people, uh, now we're moving the people, the men around on the, on the, on the risk board, right? Um, getting people into Hithlum. Um, uh, we get Andreth finally in 361. So 50 years after the men come into Beleriand, we get Andreth. Um, uh, we get some of the humans leaving. We get uh, uh, Arthel and Maegwin returning to Gondolin, of course, and that whole story coming to a crisis there. Um, uh, another battle. Hador Goldenhead, right, in his service of Fingolfin up in Hithlum. So we get the sort of the the true establishment of the of the of, of that uh, household there of the Adine. Um, uh, so we're working up towards, let's see, so Andreth is, what, 58 when she has her conversation with Finrod. Um, uh, yeah, okay, and I don't know that we want to dramatize necessarily the conversation of Finrod and Andreth. 
awesome as it is, and it's one of my favorite things that Tolkien wrote, um, I am not sure we want to do an episode just on their debate. I think we want to kind of integrate the ideas from their debate into into other things. So, um, anyway, yeah, we definitely we definitely need our need our our Andreth and Ignor love story during this time. Um, okay, we have. Um, Right, more stuff. We'll get uh, Haleth, right? So we got Haleth and the people of Haleth. Um, we, we already had her for a while, but she finally dies in 420. Um, Haleth obviously needs to be, needs to get some screen time, right? Haleth is seriously awesome. So um, my own inclination, by the way, so we've got the three different kingdoms of the elf friends or three different kingdoms, three different kindreds. I mean, of the elf friends, um, the house of Hador, which will end up in Hithlum, uh, the house of, um, uh, the other one, the house of Beor, right. Which is going to end up up in Dorthonian and then the people of Haleth. And during this time, as you can see from, you know, uh, for a hundred years, essentially, you know, from like three twenty ish, all the way up through 420-ish, um, we have them settling and situating themselves in the places where they're going to be most famously ending up. Um, for my money, Haleth is the best story of all of them. And rather than just being like, okay, so now the men are migrating here and there, I think we follow the story of Haleth uh, there. Um, and the the travails of the people of Haleth their friendship with the elves, their desire to be independent, their, uh, you know, the heroism of Haleth herself and her leadership of her people um, can be something that I think that we can really focus on as a sort of primary entry point for the integration and the struggles in ways of the integration of the humans and uh, the elves. Now, in one sense, choosing Haleth as kind of the poster child for the early humans is tricky, um, and I, I think that we, um, I think that we might end up kind of maybe. Okay, so one of the things that's tricky about just choosing Haleth as a kind of poster child of the early humans is that she's a little bit unusual. Like she's not Beor, right? She and Beor are quite different. Haleth is much more independent. Beor, you know, takes service right away. Right. Um, uh, so some of them are, are much more sort of devoted to and loyal to the elves that they ally themselves to very closely. Whereas the people of Haleth want to sort of live off by themselves. So, um, in that way, she's not typical, but also for that reason, her story is kind of more interesting. Right. Um, so yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, not, so Nick says for about how many episodes? See, again, it's the same question, right? How much do we want to make up? Um, we, I mean, you could do an entire season of the people of Haleth, right? From the time when they cross over the Blue Mountains, um, you know, uh, through where they end up, right? I mean, you could, Haleth is a really interesting character, Um uh, and her people's story is an interesting and tragic story around which we could make up many more details, right, to uh, uh, to to have a, a full and in-depth story. I don't think we should do that. Um, but I think that 
you know, we could kind of do, um, we have the opportunity to do a lot if we wanted to, uh, with, with them. And I'm not sure we should, um, that is uh, to dilate it into like, you know, and now eight episodes of the people of Haleth. Like, I don't think we need that. Um, I don't, um, I don't have it very concretely in mind, but I definitely want, I definitely want Haleth to be a major character. I'm kind of thinking, in my mind, I'm kind of thinking of Haleth and Beor, that we should sort of follow both of them, spend more time with Haleth, because again, her story is more interesting. You know, Beor's story is a little bit less interesting. Um, but, um, but I would like to, um, yeah, Bayor's story is less interesting, but he is the sort of representative, uh, you know, in the two of them, I think we can kind of encapsulate the relationship of the Adine to the elves, right? The one which is sort of willing to live near them, right? And to be known uh, by them and to be allied with them, but wants to be independent, right? And the other which is subservient to the elves, you know, which says, like, we want to learn from the elves. You know, we are, um, uh, you know, we want to, we want to go into service, service with you. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I, I think that we can do that. And then Hador comes in later, but see the reason I said two instead of three, we do need to introduce the third people, of course, at some point, but Hador's story and Beor's story aren't super different. You know, we've, again, we've got like the elf friends who are super close to the elves and we've got the elf friends who are more like elf acquaintances, right? Those seem to be the two stories uh, that we, you know, can tell or would want to tell. Um, and, you know, Hador and Beor are kind of lumped in together. Um, yeah, exactly, Marie. Hador is like Beor take two. Um, so, I mean, one possibility that we could do, and of course there's going to be a lot of connection. Well, there's a lot of connection among all the kindreds, really, but um, all three of them, that is. Um, one thing that I'm really tempted to do is to move Hador back chronologically, um, um, essentially to kind of ditch Malach, uh, and have it be the house of Hador from the beginning. Um, basically to have Hador, Beor, and Haleth all together, um, which would kind of, I think, imaginatively simplify the, um the situation with the Adine. Um, but anyway, I, I'm not, I'm not necessarily wedded to that idea. Uh, but again, I'm just trying to think of how to present this. Um, we could show Hador. Cause again, if we moved Hador back chronologically, then we could have Hador and Beor, um, you know, sort of knowing each other and, um, um, kind of, you know, differing about what, um, establishing some, some, some distinctions there. Um, no, Nick, I don't think this introduces any generational problems. I mean, all it would mean if we moved Hador back and it wouldn't even really be a compression of the time. I'm thinking instead of making Hador a more distant ancestor of Hurin, basically, um, 
instead of having him only be just a, a couple generations back from Hurin, have Hurin be of Hador's line, but have there be more, un, you know, uh, uh, generations in between. That I don't think is a big deal. Um, honestly, to me, introducing the confusion of these are the people of Malach, but we're you know, the, or the people of Marach, or maybe the people of Malach, but we're not going to call them that. We're going to call them the people of Hador because he came later, but he was the super famous one. So forget we said anything about the people of Marach because Marach doesn't matter anymore. Uh, like that would be, I, I just, we can do that again. It's how it happens in the book, um, but. I think we're inviting confusion. I think we can simplify things. If Hador is going to be the sort of name of the house, which it is, right? It's how, I mean, people are going to call this the house of Hador uh, afterwards. So exactly, we just swap Malak and Hador, Marie. Uh, and then we can, we can keep the time if you want. And, uh, and then again, like, uh, we, obviously we're not going to mess with the generations when it comes to, uh, you know, Hurin and, and Baron and, 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 and all the rest of them, you know, uh, and how they need to be related to each other chronologically. Um, we just make Hador a more distant relation and push him back. That's all. Um, just a suggestion. We don't necessarily have to do that, but I think it would simplify things an awful lot um, so that we can have the clear people of Haleth, House of Hador, House of Beor, and then we just call them that consistently all the way through. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway. Um, okay. Haleth dies, right? Her people live in the forest of Brethil. We get a bunch of people born, like, right around the same time there, right? Baron and Hurin and Huor. Um, then we get the Dagor Bragalak and the death of Fingolfin in single combat. So, again, in the overall, you know, view from a thousand feet, projected, non-binding projected outline that we did years ago, the Dagor Bragalak and the, the uh, specifically the duel of Fingolfin and Morgoth is what we saw as the culmination of season four originally. So the question seems to me to be so the question, the biggest question on the table in today's episode, therefore, is do we still try to stick with that or do we split it into two seasons? And honestly, I can see this working either way. Um, do I agree that there is way too much to possibly cover in one season? I don't think I do agree with that. Um, I, I really don't. Um, because again, I think that a lot of this stuff can be done in a comparatively short time, or at least by bringing on some of these stories simultaneously. Again, I'm not convinced we need to spend half a season, you know, on, the conflict between the Noldor and the Sindar. So going back for a second. Um, actually, wait, let me go forward for a second. Okay. Actually, yeah, let me, let me proceed forward. Then I'll go backwards. Okay. Um, so back to storyline overviews. Recall that Ale did not appear in season three, right? We, we talked about that. We have to establish him in Nan Elmoth this season. That's fine. I'm not worried about that. Um, the Feanorians take a back seat and are not the primary storyline in the early part, right? Absolutely. Um, they'll still come up, of course, especially in the context of the Sindar, but yes, the Feanorians, the focus shifts away from the Feanorians between season three and season four. Um, the early part of the first age is the Finrod and Turgon show. Yes. Yes, it is. But again, 
how much time do we want to spend on character introduction and scenery, right? Like, Still Constructing Gondolin is probably not a good episode title, right? So, um, we obviously, we have to introduce the vision. We have to introduce Olmo's warnings. We have to, int- we have to do the, uh, uh, the, you know, the Nargathron story, which introduces us to the possibility of doing dwarf stories. As I said, you know, that's, that's cool. That's fine. We have to do uh, the establishment of Gondolin, though there's kind of... Unless, again, we want to make a long drama out of crowds of people sneaking, there's not too much to say apart from the fact that Gondolin is built, right? Again, unless we want to invent stories, unless we want to have a Gondolin establishment story in which we're going to introduce conflicts, right? Which we could do, and Arathel could be at the heart of that, right? Um, We could have an episode which sort of features the plans for Gondolin, right? And Turgon insisting on the whole secrecy business, the whole secrecy and the whole nobody can leave, you know, once you come in, rule. Um, and Arathel not being down with that from the beginning, right? So have her to be his interlocutor and the voice of, uh, um, the voice of resistance to that plan. Um, so, okay. So th- maybe... If we strip, but even with that, even with heated debates between Arathel and Turgon, is that an episode, like a whole episode of building Gondolin? Maybe, not so sure. But anyway, all right, we'll see what we can do here. Um, okay, let's keep going. Go Adriel and Celeborn. Yeah, yeah, we need to decide what we're going to do there. Though, again, I don't see that as a whole episode, like, you know... Uh, I'm sure not excited about doing a, you know, a, <laughs> I'm imagining a, a Galadriel and Celeborn romantic montage, you know, kind of like an Attack of the Clones with Padme <laughs> and Anakin, right? Rolling around in the flowers with strange wildlife, right? I, no, I don't want to do that. Um, so yeah, we have them interacting, but we work their interactions, uh, into other storylines, right? We show them interacting, um, throughout the, especially of course, at the beginning, um, we can bring them together again at, you know, various points as things sort of intensified there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and Marie, I agree. I want to spend more time with Galadriel and Melian than we spend with Galadriel and Celeborn. Yeah. Yeah, I agree about that. Um, yeah. Oh, that's a nice little hook, Hakan. I like that. Hakan says, Celeborn takes Galadriel to the Phallus, where the sight of the ships makes her confess about the kinslaying. Uh, yeah, the uh, given Celeborn's friendship with Círdan, as we've been establishing that, um, the idea of her meeting Celeborn there and having that conversation where she talks about the kinslaying uh, there by the ships of the... Uh, of the, you know, of the, well, the local Tulare, right? Uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's cool. That's really good. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, all right. More Fingolfin is High King. Uh, yeah, you know, golly, that's going to be tricky. We're going to have to think about that pretty carefully. Um, we need to establish Fingolfin as an excellent High King. Clearly, our opportunities to do that are in 
his interactions with Thingol, right? Um, he needs to be the real focal point of those discussions. The Feanorians will come in as kind of counterpoint, right, often, um, especially Caranthir as the sort of harsh counterpoint. Um, but showing Fingolfin's leadership there among uh, all of the Noldor especially, we need to, to, to continue to show his growth. We've already shown him growing. I mean, Fingolfin, if we've done season three right, Fingolfin is awesome in that last episode of season three, right? Um, you know, that scene that Dave was describing, uh, you know, that uh, Fingolfin, you know, marching away from the gates of Angband in slow motion, right? Like, Fingolfin is established as awesome. Um, but, but yeah, showing him uh, in leadership, and again, I think it's going to be his patience in dealing with Thingol and his, you know, it, ultimately he's going to be the one who's going to be instituting the policy of humoring Thingol, essentially, right? Um, to, again, just be patient and to, to, and of course he is going to have the kinslaying still weighing on him as well. So, you know, that's definitely, that's definitely going to come up. So, okay, yep. Um, but again, not whole episodes. That's going to be done in the context of, of uh, the Sindar Noldor thing, primarily which, of course, then is the next storyline mentioned. The corruption of men in the East, we talked about that. We hint at it, but we and, and we have the bad guys talk about it, but we don't show it. And a cohesive dwarf storyline. Yeah, petty dwarves, maybe. Uh, and again, we can come back to that on a couple of occasions. Um, remember the stories about how the elves hunted the petty dwarves, right? Thinking they were orcs. Um my thought is that we integrate that with the Noldor, with the Feanorians in particular. Remember, Kelligorm is a mighty hunter, and he lives up there near Caranthir as well. So I'm thinking that we have Kelligorm and Kurafin and Caranthir killing a bunch of the petty dwarves, partly in ignorance, partly because they're jerks. And uh, But then Caranthir establishes that. So we have this then um, be part of their... Caranthir's interactions with the dwarves of the mountains, right? Because remember, their relationship with the petty dwarves is also a little weird. So, um, you know, it's a it's a touchy situation, um, but not like a doomed situation, unless you're meme, right? In which case, everything's doomed. But um, anyway, that that's kind of just a quick thought about pulling together the very few scraps we have about dwarves in this section. And of course we will, we'll be connecting this with Nargothrond as well. Um, but, uh, but I think we can kind of pull that together. And that, so this gives us some kind of, well, not necessarily a cohesive dwarf storyline so much as a, a, a concrete addition to our dwarf world building. Right. Um, so there, it won't necessarily be a, like a plot per se, unless, the the storyline is simply like resolving the issue of the petty dwarves. Like, who are the petty dwarves? How are they related to the dwar- to the other dwarves? Um, what are they doing, and what do we do with them, and what are they going to end up doing? Right. I mean, that's kind of the and how do they fit into this whole culture that's being established, um, or not fit into the culture that's being established, and whose fault is that, and all that kind of thing. Um, 
And Marie, you're right. We do have some dwarf craft going on. Um, uh, we have uh, 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 Telkar who makes the dragon helm and Xerox makes the Nauglamir. Uh So yeah, we do have uh, uh, some of those moments. I was kind of thinking, Marie, of the, the, the sort of the presentation of the Nauglamir as being the event that we could use as like the Nargothrond is done moment, right? Um, uh, the culmination of the making of, of uh, Nargothrond uh, will, will be marked by the, the presentation of the Nauglamir. So we can, we can work up to that. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So that's, that's all cool stuff. Yeah, you're right about the craft work there. Okay, so, so where do we end? All this stuff to do and how do we do it? Um, as as uh, Marie grudgingly confesses, the original plan was Fingolfin's duel for Morgoth after the Dagor Bragalach. Um, uh, it is true that covering these four hundred plus years uh, in one season. Now we've goodness knows we've covered way longer than that in previous seasons. So we've dealt with time passes issues before. Uh, of course, the most time that ever passed was during season one, but we didn't miss the time so much there. Um, I think the biggest strain in time passing was, uh, is the second half of season two, right? From when we arrive in Valinor halfway through, through the, uh, unrest of the Noldor and we've got to have the younger generation growing up and everything. Um, uh, so that was uh, that was challenging, but we handled it. So a- anyway, um, the mere span of years doesn't bother me. I think that we can handle that again as we kind of handled things before. Like all you have to do is, you know, cut away for an episode, do something else, and then come back to it, and it's like, hey, time has passed. Yeah, again, we can manage that. Um, but there are a bunch of stories that we want to develop kind of in parallel. Um, So let's see suggestions for where, like if we split it into two, I'll say off the top, I'm resistant to spreading it into more than two because I honestly, I mean, is there a lot here? Yeah, kind of there is, Um, but there's not like many of the things that there are, are things that I don't want to take that much time to do. Um, as I was saying, really the big fundamental question is not where do we end season four? The real question is how much stuff do we want to make up? Right. I mean, you know, how much, how much plot do we want to add just flat add? And I, I don't object to it. Like I, I'm not saying, I think adding is bad. Um, you know, how many incidents in the life of Haleth do we want to bring up? Right. How much, do we want to invent stuff that happens during the uh, building of Nargothrond and Gondolin? You know, how much, um, how many more incidents and conflicts and interactions do we want to make up between the, you know, the Sindar and the Philothrim and the uh, Fanorians and the rest of the Noldor, right? I mean, there's lots of things that we can do. Um, but, uh, so, I mean, as I say, I mean, there's a whole bunch of stories in here that we could blow up into like a whole season or a whole half season. You know, if we wanted to, we could make the story of Ignor and Andreth like six episodes, 
Well, we could do that, right? If we wanted to, we could sure make Ao and Arthel into a pretty major story, right? Um, we need to stretch that one out over time. We need to have time passing in a couple different places, right? Time passing in Gondolin first, and then time passing with Aeol afterwards for Maeglin to grow up, right? Um, and for Arthel to get over being creeped out initially. Um, uh, so, um, anyway, that's... Uh, I do think we have the opportunity to kind of make this as long as we want. But my answer to that question, how much stuff do we want to make up, is I think in this case, not that much. There are places where we're going to want to fill in stories and details. And maybe, who knows, maybe when we actually dig into this stuff episode by episode, I'm going to want to do more uh, and sort of add more things. Um, I guess the um, um, the main... Um, when it comes to just making up whole storylines, like out of whole cloth, the primary thing that I'm thinking for that in this season is the dwarves, right? I I would want to add there. I don't want to add big segments to the like political conflicts, or I don't want to go out of our way to add major like intra-Feanorian conflict, for instance. That's another thing that we could do. Um, I think that we can kind of bring that up to remind everybody that the Feanorians are still not a completely happy um, and uh, well-adjusted family. Um, but I don't think that uh, I don't think that we need um, I don't think that we need to to really add huge stretches so that we have like several episodes of like Feanorian drama in this season or season five. Um, uh, <laughs> Boomful thinks my accusation of the Feanorians being not a well-adjusted family. I'm, I'm getting the sense that he thinks that's rather an understatement. Possibly it is. Um, uh, but um, yeah, so, so yeah, I, I don't think exactly, Marie, I don't think we need to make, create reasons to put the Feanorians on screen more. Um, we'll remember them and we'll rem- we can, we can provide enough reminders of who they are individually and of what they stand for and of the issues that they have such that when we're ready to come back to them later on, um, we'll be ready for that. Um, uh, yeah. Um, so, okay. So again, my answer to the main question, I don't think is a lot. Now, Marie, I absolutely agree with you. The coolest part about this whole adaptation enterprise, right, is not the parts where we just visualize how we would represent the story that Tolkien tells, but when we, um, as you say, give these storylines room to breathe, right? When we turn, when we're just taking Tolkien's stories and turning them into a well, a different kind of narrative than they are in the Silmarillion, right? Not that kind of plot summary, <clears throat> plot summary genre that Tolkien develops in the Silmarillion, but a more, you know, novelistic, like more character development, more, you know, on the ground showing how uh, these stories really fill out. That's, that's definitely um, what we what we do want to do. And I hear the objection. I hear that I can, I can, I can appreciate the concern that if we try to squeeze all this stuff into one season, it's going to end up sounding like a kind of plot summary season. 
Um, I get that. I get that. And I'm, I certainly don't want to do that. I'm just, as I say, although there are a lot of things, there are a lot of things that I feel like can be done relatively efficiently. So let me go back here. Let's go back here and think, all right, if we were to do this in two seasons, where would they be? Where would we split? Where would we end? Um, I don't think I can get behind Thingo learning of the Kinslaying and forbidding Quenya because there's not enough happening there. I don't think we have 13 episodes before that. Um, I think we could get there in like four episodes, probably. Um, the most obvious um, breaking point is, Marie, where you broke the slides, right? Um, do all the men stuff in the second season or fifth season uh, and do the other stuff in the earlier season. Does this give us enough to work with? Well, hang on. Since I'm on this slide, let me think about what this would, what season five would look for, like there for. Men arrive, they settle down, the people of Haleth do their Haleth things, the people of Beor and Hador, if we do that shift, do their Beor and Hadeth more closer ally thing. The entire story of Aeol uh, and... So we'd have both Aeol and Aravel and Andreth and Ignor would both happen in season Five. One of the real advantages of that, of course, is that we can settle Aravel in Gondolin and thus give her like a whole season to get bored so that when we come back in the next season and she's been there since the previous season, uh, everyone's going to be able to get behind how she's bored at that point. So that makes that much simpler. Um, I think that this means we'd have to front end load Goadriel and Celeborn, indeed Coadriel and uh, everybody, Goadriel period, right? So we get Goadriel and Meli and plus Goadriel and Celeborn here in season four, right? Um, so basically this would, well, no, it's not quite fair to say mostly elf-centered and mostly human-centered. Um, but um, that's not quite fair. But okay, all right, so... So here's one of my concerns. One of my concerns is there's a lot of incidents listed here, but most of them are like births and deaths or they are um, like movements of peoples that we're not necessarily going to want to spend a lot of detail on. I mean, like the actual number of incidents in season five, if we think of this as basically what we're covering in season five, um, you know, the discovery of men. Big deal, right? Uh, that's 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 big. We could even, well, it introduces the question of when do we do that conversation with Sauron and Morgoth, right, about going out and discovering men. I think we'd have to do that near the end of season four in order to set up season five. I don't know. I don't know. Um... Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, 
Zachary, this is exactly the challenge of these this season or this pair of seasons. As Zachary says, a lot of things happen, but not a lot of it is compelling television drama. It could be made so. It could. But but again, hang on. So just, just, just the human stuff. People arrive. People move around. People are related to the elves in various ways. Okay. All right. Okay. And then... That's it. Then the Dagor Prakolak, right? So, I mean, fortunately, we get both Aeol and Aravel and uh, Andreth and Ignor in this season, and maybe that's enough. Maybe that's enough um, to carry um, to carry this season, right? To carry season five, if we conceive of it this way. Um, uh Yeah, I mean, Marie, we could always, if we needed to, I mean, we can invent plots, right? Um, especially if we tre- if we don't do it like I was suggesting, um, that is kind of lumping Hador and Beor together with, with Haleth on the other side, and instead really make three distinct peoples, right? Three distinct kind of storylines. The story of the people of Hador, the story of the people of Beor, and the story of the people of Haleth. Um those three stories more fully developed plus the stories of Aeol and Arthel and Andreth and Ignor, then leading up to the Dagor Bragalach and the death of Fingolfin. Um, I mean, that would probably be okay, I think. Um, Especially since I think the Dagor Bragalach could be maybe more than one episode, really. Um, yeah. Well, I, Tony, I hear that about uh, Tony suggesting we introduce the Dagor Bragalach earlier on and have um, the end of the season sort of focusing on some of the various consequences of that. But I really want to end with the death of Fingolfin. <laughs> I really, I really do. Um, but not only that, uh, the consequences of the Dagor Bragalak is where we'd begin the following season, with, of course, a principal focus on, you know, Barahir and his band. Yeah. Yeah. Um,. But yeah, exactly. So we do the battle. We do the battle in the twelfth episode and Fingolfin's duel in the thirteenth. I could even imagine splitting the battle between the eleventh and the twelfth episodes, um, having different phases of it, um, and sort of seeing different impacts of it, right? Because we have. It's, yeah. Now we can see about that when it when it comes to it. So okay. All right, I'm talking myself into imagining this as a season. So what does this give us then as I'm going back again? So season four would then be... The Fanorians, The Fanorians and the, the uh, rest of the Noldor. The, with the rescue of Mithros thrown in there. The Sindar and Noldor. Okay. With 
uh, sort of beginning essentially at the feast of Marath Adarthad, uh, and then going through significantly later the revelation about the kinslaying. <clears throat> in the midst of which we've got Galadriel and Celeborn, which we can have fun with in various ways. Uh, I can see, Marie, I think you're going to have a hard time reining me in on Celeborn this season. I'll try to be good. I really will. Um, oh, yeah, Tony, that's just what I was thinking. Have the big ex- explosion of fire happen in, in episode 11 and then the actual battle in episode 12. Yeah, that's just the kind of, when I was suggesting breaking it between two episodes, that's kind of exactly what I was thinking of. Have the, the mere devastating onset uh, in episode 11. Um, and then, like, episode 11 ends with everything on fire, and then Gothmog and the Balrogs, uh, you know, leading the charge through, uh, and Glaurung appearing. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's exa- exactly what I'm, what I was kind of thinking we could maybe do. We'll see. Um, especially since, of course, that's going to be the logical, that, that sequence is going to be the logical and tragical culmination of the, uh, Andreth and Ignor love story, which is going to be, the second, if uh, if Arathel and Eor's first half of the season, Andreth uh, um, uh, and Ignor are going to be second half of the season. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, Zachary Coman says we have to we have to make sure that we remember to have an episode during the feast uh, of Merith Adarthad where everyone's worried that something bad's going to happen because they're having a feast. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Zachary, we should have the feast be interrupted, uh, but have it be a false alarm. Um, <laughs> anyway, okay, all right. Um, the establishment of Gondolin and Nargothrond are going to be challenging, I think. Challenging because, again, city building is boring. Um, I think the saving grace there actually is going to be the dwarves. Um, hmm. What if, what if we did this? What if we, what if we budge the Dagor Aglareb a little bit chronologically? And, um, yeah, exactly. Zach says elves having contractor issues. Um, what if we budge the Dagor Aglareb a bit and we have... We don't have to necessarily follow... One of the things that we've had all the way through, which has been a, a characteristic of our, our season storylines, has been a sort of central turning point, right? Uh, 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 a, a pivot point near the middle of the season. Sometimes it's been a real shifting of the scene, like in season two, right? When we had um, the shift from Beleriand, you know, the journey across Beleriand in the first half, and then the time in Valinor... Uh, leading up to the unrest in the second half. Sometimes it's been a pivotal event around which the entire plot turns. So something like a a Shakespearean Act 3 climax, right? As we had in Season 1 with the destruction of the lamps by Melkor, and as we had in Season 3 with the burning of the ships by Feanor, right? So... I was thinking of if we we have the Dagor Aglareb be the... um, the pivot episode of this season. And what I'm trying to sort out is how that would fit. It needs to fit. It's got to fit in the plot line 
of the Sindar Noldor, right? I mean, that's got to be how we work that, right? The, um, whether it's something as simple as the attack of Morgoth, um, you know, at the Dagor Aglareb is the thing that reminds them that they all have to work together, right? Um, and that they all agree to, you know, agree to disagree on some things, agree to work together in establishing the siege, um, yeah. Which then leads me to the question, what happens first? The Dagor Aglareb or the, you know, everything hitting the fan with the kinslaying? I'm inclined, I, I kind of want to shift those. Um, I kind of want to have, bring the tension to the boiling point and have the kinslaying bomb dropped. Right. Um, and things be at their worst between the Sindar and the Noldor and then have the Dagor Aglareb is kind of how I would like to do that. Um, uh, as long as that then leaves us enough, because then that would essentially have the tensions building up to that so that after the Dagor Aglareb, we essentially have established peace in Beleriand so that the, then the second half of the season would be focused in largely on that's when we, so I'd want to budge Nargothrond and the vision to afterwards. Right. So then we start the second half of the season with the vision of Olmo, uh, right to, uh, to Finrod and Turgon. And then we could go and we can do Nargothrond and we can, and, and the whole dwarf plot, right. As well as remember, uh, Caranthir and the dwarves. So, between all those things, we have the dwarf stuff going on and the establishment of stuff. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is that we don't have to... We don't even have to finish Gondolin in this season, honestly. We need to get them there, right? We need to, you know, we need to, uh, you know, have the scene with... Uh, you know, uh, uh, Turgon with his golden shovel, you know, um, but we don't have to have a ribbon cutting ceremony, uh, at Gondolin in this season that can be happen at the very beginning of season six to introduce the Arathel story. Um, so yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. Or maybe, you know, I'm just thinking about this. Maybe I'm just wanting to make this too mechanical, right? To make the two halves of the season too separate. You know, maybe we can overlay those two all the way through. Um, I guess I was just sort of... It makes... It's certainly, it's certainly simpler. Perhaps it's too simplistic. But it certainly makes it more straightforward and coherent if we essentially have the shape of this season be conflict, tension, we don't know what's going to happen, how is things going to fall out here in Beleriand, are we going to end up with an Elvish civil war? Like, that's those are the questions of the first half of the season, and those get resolved at the Dagor Aglareb. Having resolved those things, now it's time, 
both to encounter others. So now we bring the dwarves in, right? So now the elves having put their own house in order, now we talk about the dwarves' house. And of course, the dwar- the, the, the primary dwarves and the petty dwarves um, uh, uh, are, are kind of working, uh, are, are, are sort of working there uh, as a kind of parallel. Um, and the establishment of Nargothrond and Gondolin in the context of peace uh, sort of works thematically. Um, yeah. Um, hmm. Yeah, Marie, I agree. The dwarves, petty dwarves can be, we can be used in parallel, though it's different, right? Um, interestingly different, right, Marie? It's not, it's not just a recapitulation of the same story. It's, it's parallel in the sense that we have this, you know, this sort of interracial, intraracial tension, right, uh, there. But of course, the differences we were suggesting, in fact, it's kind of cool because it's almost opposite, right, where the petty dwarves are the ones who are the transgressors, um, whereas the Noldor are the ones who are the transgressors, and so like they're in a position of strength, and yet they're the transgressors. Uh, the uh, petty dwarves are in are are in a position of weakness because they were the transgressors, right? So we have a different dynamic there. Uh, so it's a very different story. Um, as for let's see, so Marie's immediate concern if. Thingol, if Finrod is building Nargothrond, so Thingol helps Finrod with Nargothrond, um, and if he already knows about the kinslaying, um, would he help Finrod with that afterwards? Yeah, I wouldn't have a problem with that, mostly because um, I think he does forgive Finarfin's children, right? You know, he's not, he's like, he's not going to banish, he's not going to um, become unfriends with Finrod Felagund. Thingol isn't right, um, and in fact, Marie, I kind of like the uh, the balance. You were talking earlier on about saying we want to show how th- p- there is reconciliation and peace among the elves. Like they like they forgive, but they don't forget. Right? We still get the disgruntled uh, folks among the among the 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 Fanorians, and we should still get disgruntlement uh, among some of the Sindar as well. I imagine Cyros, by the way, as a spokesperson of that. Um, anyway, so we have that, but then also, of course, the, the, the bigger manifestation, Marie, that you were pointing to of the, the continual banning of the language, right? Like, we'll work with you, we'll fight together in the Dagor Aglareb, but we're still not, I'm still not letting anybody speak Quenya, and I'm still going to tell you, even though we're fighting in battle side by side, if you speak Quenya, um, you're, I, I will take that as a sign that you are a slayer of kin unrepentant, right? Um, so to me, him going to Finrod and being like, sure, I'll help you build Nargothrond, you know, but like, but no Quenya, right? Like that, 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 it seems to be a way that we can demonstrate, um, what it means for him to forgive, but not forget essentially. So I'm not worried about that as a major obstacle. Nick is concerned about having two separate seasons in one. I hear that. But again, to me... We have these two different plot lines. The only question is whether we kind of separate them on either side of the pivot. Um, and they're not separate in the sense of like... So, Nick, we're not going to have the same kind of problem that we had in season three, right? Where we have like 
the Noldor story over here. Meanwhile, the Balerian story. Um, we're not going to have that issue, right? This is all in one place, and indeed, there is a kind of a logical, chronological development here, right? So it wouldn't just be like, and now a totally separate season with totally separate characters. It would be the same characters, same place, but after, uh, essentially after the siege begins, after peace has been established among the elves, and what happens and how do they grow and develop after that. Oh, you're saying this is better, Nick. Okay. All right. Okay. Good. Good. Um, Yeah. So I could, I mean, I could see it going either way. Um, I can imagine. So for instance, if somebody wanted to make a strong argument to say, no, the Dagor Aglareb should be at the end. Like, let's swap the two. Somebody mentioned swapping the attack of the orcs from Lamoth and the Dagor Aglareb. So we start with the little feeler attack by the orcs, and then we have the major attack by the orcs afterwards, so that the Dagor Aglareb becomes the climax, uh, you know, at the very, very end of the of the season. And we ha- and so we're resolving the kinslaying issues and stuff all the way through to the end, and we're interspersing the other things. I could imagine an argument for something like that. Um, one of the things that I, uh, I don't know, to me, I kind of want to separate them. I kind of want to separate the, um, the vision of Olmo and the establishment of the kingdoms and the stuff with the dwarves, um, from the, um, uh, from the tension among the elves. I kind of want to just deal with that by itself. Especially since, uh, and, and we can do, again, we do Galadriel and Celeborn there. We front, we, we front end load them not only into this season, but into the front half of this season. Um, and if Galadriel confesses about the kinslaying, if she tells Celeborn the story of the kinslaying before, right, so this is before Thingol knows about it, it puts Kelborn in an interesting place, which is cool, right? Putting Kelborn in an interesting place is awesome because it gives him an opportunity to make like an independent decision and do something interesting. So if he chooses not to reveal the kinslaying to Thingol, um, after he knows about it first, but he doesn't say anything about it. That's Kelborn doing something as if he had a spine. So that's interesting. Um, I don't know that would have big implications for his subsequent relationship with Thingol, right? So, uh, that might be perhaps too uncomfortable. I don't know. Um, but, yeah, because then Kyrdin would be, like, ratting him out, essentially. Yeah, I have to work on that a little bit more. Okay. And then the season ends with Glaurung's attack. That's kind of fun because it would have the season end with a sign of what's to come, right? Um, A hint at the future breaking of the siege, um, an indicator of the the growing strength of Morgoth's forces, right? Sort of here embodied in the person of Glaurung. Um, Lots of fun foreshadowing. I mean, we can have the attack of Glaurung, Glaurung... uh, foreshadow many things, right? Um, from uh, the Dagor Bragalach to Glaurung and Turin to Smaug and Bard, right? Um, 
all those things we can foreshadow in the final attack of Glaurung there at the end. Um, so what's the theme? What's the overarching story? It's the last thing I want to work out and then we're done. What's the overarching story? Forgiveness? Resolution of conflict through, you know, by the overcoming of differences and willingness to forgive and come together despite very serious disagreements. So forgiveness and reconciliation is the overall theme of season four. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, Marie says, of course, remember, we're starting with Fingen rescuing Mithros. So, yeah, yeah, that sure works from the start. And if we can echo that with the dwarves as well in some ways, whether it resolves or not, or whether it comes out the same way or not. Yeah. And in some ways, Marie, having this makes even more powerful, even more important, that sense of collaboration there at the end. Right, uh, like in the building of Nargothrond, um, and you know, Marie, it would be interesting actually to think about Gondolin. Notice what we've kind of created accidentally here. Gondolin is awesome, but Gondolin is different, right? In its isolationism, right? Everywhere else, including Nargothrond, really, we would have people coming together, right? Um, Now, I know, Marie, I was thinking the same thing. The long pause that I just made was me thinking through exactly what you just suggested. Of course, one of the things that the text emphasizes about Turgon and his people is that um, in Nevrast originally, and then, of course, subsequently in Gondolin, uh, logically, um, There was the greatest mingling of the Sindar and the Noldor. So, you know, Nevrast is like the Sindar-Noldor melting pot, right? Um, so to make it sort of not a, you know, to emphasize the non-collaboration of Gondolin seems a little counterintuitive in that way. Um, but I'm thinking more of how they shut themselves away and they're building their own city and nobody even knows that it's happening and nobody knows where they are. This is still sort of theoretically true of Nargothron, but I think Nargothron is not, is Nargothron is not the same kind of secret that Gondolin is, right? Um, people don't know like where the entrance to Nargothron is, but you know, there's a lot of people collaborating on Nargothron. Um, yeah. This raises the issue, by the way. We have to do Nevrast. We have to make Nevrast... Can we make Nevrast the site of the Feast of Merith Adarthad? The place of the coming... Because we've got to establish Nevrast, right? Because, keep in mind, we need to... Ha- I mean, I'm tempted I'm, I'm tempted to skip Nevrast. Just skip it, right? Have Turgon not really have a place until he establishes Gondolin. Um, that would be kind of simpler... 
Right, I know. Maria, I knew you'd hate that suggestion. Uh, but I'm just saying, it's something that could be done, except, except, obviously, Marie, we're not going to skip Nevrast. Clearly, right? We have to have Nevrast, if only for Tuor's armor, right? Uh, that gets nailed up to the wall. Yeah, absolutely. We, we, we have to have it. Um, uh, even if for no other reason than that, we need it. Um. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I agree that it is, it is, it's not only central to North and South, but it's also on the coast. So we can get the Philothrum involved there. Yeah. I think Nevrast makes sense and it gives us a great way to introduce the city and to introduce Turgon, um, prior to, you know, the, the vision. Right. Um, yeah. So Tony, I agree. That makes sense. Um, okay. All right. So we can introduce Nevrast that way. All right. Okay. Starting to take shape in my mind. I'll tell you right off the top. I'm afraid, and you can feel free to... I hope... In fact, not only do I hope, I believe, I I, I, I trust that months from now... You guys will be able to throw this quote back in my face, right? Um, but I will nevertheless, I will say it at the beginning. My fear is that season four is too boring, that not enough happens, too much talking, right? That season four is primarily folks having tense conversations and not enough happens. Not enough is really moved forward. Um, that's my fear. It, As I said, you know. I trust I'll feel differently by the time we get to the end of uh, uh, of season four, but uh, we'll we'll see. Yeah, see, Nick, I do love those love tense conversations, but I like my tense conversations like pleasantly intermingled between, you know, like the death of Feanor and the burning of the ships, for instance, right? Um, <clears throat> yeah, or like happening during the battle on uh on uh uh you know like with Denethor, right, with the green elves. Um Yeah, yeah. So yeah, what I get impatient with is episode after episode of like increasingly and slightly varying tenseness of conversation. Um Yeah, yeah. Um Yeah, Zach says it's kind of an issue for season five, too, if we split the seasons as we're thinking. Yes, though, Zach, the, for me, the saving grace there is the storylines that we're going to be enhancing and or inventing for the different elvi- or human houses, right? Um, we've got some events there which are kind of cool. So, like, for instance, the incident with the uh, the the traitor in disguise, right? Like the spy in disguise in the camp of the people of Marach, right? That's a cool story. And we can give that to one of them. Hador is my, the house of Hador is my vote uh, for that. We've got the story of Haleth, obviously, you know, the initial story of how Haleth came to be the leader, the death of her father and brother. And then, you know, the trek that she leads her people on who's sort of shades of the Helkaraxa, right? Um, but different. And she's a different kind of leader than Fingolfin. Um, so 
so there's plenty happening there. Again, it's not about action versus not action. It's about it's about events, right? It's about things happening. Um, and uh, uh, we've got um, uh, we've got the people of BR. We can give them something to do besides serving. Right. They've got to establish themselves in Dorthonian. That's got to be interesting. Right. Um, uh, anyway. So, yeah. So there's 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 something we can do. Again, we're 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 making stuff up there. So that's OK. Um, and then, of course, we've got we've got uh, we're inters intermingling that with two of the coolest love stories that we get in this whole portion of the book. Right. A.O. and Arthel and uh, uh, and uh Andreth and and Ignor. So, so yeah. Between all those things, I th- and then of course the Dagor Bragalock breaking out at the end, and the the duel of Fingolfin and Morgoth. So lots of really great um, uh, things happening in that second season. I'm less worried about that than I am about this. Now I agree, Marie. If we're if inventing dragons is boring, we're doing this wrong. I, I agree. I agree. You know, we, we do have some some stuff there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yes, Nick is very sensibly reminding me of how much more of this kind of problem there was in season one, right? Yeah, it's true. It's true. See, Nick, maybe it's just it's the growth of my sensibilities, right? Now that now that we've been doing this for several years and I I, I, I have a better feel for these kinds of stories, I am less content with uh, and now this episode will be the council debate of what happens after the destruction of the lamps. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, perhaps, perhaps. Um, yeah, yeah, Marie, it does mean that we pretty much will have to wait for. Well, no, Glorfinda. We'll, we'll get uh, uh, we'll get one of Trisha's favorites in this season. We'll, we will get Glorfinda. We'll get Arathel in the next season. Well, she'll happen in this season too. I'm still here. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Let's see. <laughs> we have to decide what to do with Glorfinda, right? Because. We Actually, have... to do them ju- both justice, we probably should split them. So that's a good idea. Yeah, yeah, we do yeah. have to decide what to do with Glorfindel. I think we need we need to make and and I insist Ichthelion because I mean I love Glorfindel too. Mm, you know, he's, he's yeah, not no, quite definitely. as special to me as he is to you. I know, but uh, but <laughs> hey, he was my boyfriend in my very first fan fiction. So, you know. <laughs> no, exactly. See, that's, <laughs> I don't have that kind of connection with Ichthelion, right? But I love Ichthelion of the Fountain, and I I really insist on. Uh, you know, these are the two because I mean, both of them are going to, uh, both of them are going to. I mean, they're going to die two of the awesomest deaths in the entire Silmarillion, right? Um, I mean, really, who, apart from Fingolfin, who rivals Ecthelion and Gorfindel? Yeah, you know, yeah, in like their deaths, maybe Huor, right? I mean, again, if we do the Fens of Serik, right? You know, that will be uh, sort of on a similar kind of par, but. I mean, man. Oh, and Zachary, we absolutely are going to get Rog. There is no way I am doing the fall of Gondolin without Rog. But Rog doesn't need as much character development as Gorfindel and Ecthelion. Um, uh, so, yeah, yeah, I, I, I think, um, yeah. So, Tony, I agree. Gorfindel and Ecthelion can both get awesome moments in the Dagor Aglareb. We will have an opportunity there to sort of show them. Um, we can show them being not just action figures, but they can, 
uh, we can introduce their characters, I think, perhaps at the uh, uh, at the Feast of Merith Adarthad, right? So that we have, uh, um, especially since Nevrast is going to be hosting now, right? So introducing them there. Um, we will be establishing Gondolin in the second half so we can have them, we can show them as... Um, you know, Turgon's closest counselors, right? The two of them and Arathel, um, in, uh, in Gondolin, or maybe Arathel's not involved. Maybe she's, uh, already distancing herself from Turgon at that point. I don't know. Um, yeah, yeah. So now that's, that's, um, I, 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 yeah, know that, uh, Rog, yeah, Rog has to happen. Uh, we might need to rename him, Marie, I agree. You know, it's one of those things that, like, Tolkien might roll over in his grave if we don't make that change, you know? Uh, uh, but, but we'll see. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, we might get Christopher Tolkien into more trouble in the afterlife. Like, if we don't rename Rog, you know, Tolkien someday will be like, see, that's why I didn't want that early stuff published, Chris. Um, but anyway, because uh, <laughs> now we've got people running around talking about Rog, uh, which does not work uh, linguistically with the other names um, anymore. But anyway, okay. All right. Okay. So I'm willing to consider this. I'm still not agree. Now I agree. I think Hakon had suggested ages ago uh, that we could basically sort of start doing outlines and see, uh, you know, but sort of be willing to be flexible. I agree. Um, I'm also thinking, okay, so I want to make a change for next time. So what I want to do next time is I want to begin with making next our next session should be making episode outlines. Um, and discussing episode outlines. Um, I want to I want to iron that out um, so that we have a concrete plan. We have a loose plan now, um, and we can we can perhaps also start. Cons- we were th- we were thinking about um, we were thinking about the um, the uh, uh, frame for next time. Originally, we might get to it right, um, but I think um, uh, I think that. I really want to work it out and we're close to it now, but I really want to, I really want to iron it out in more detail. So let's do episode outlines next time. We probably won't get beyond that. Maybe we can start brainstorming with the frame and then do a similar thing, do some brainstorming for the frame and then flesh the frame out in more detail in session three uh, for season four. Um, but yeah, Tony, exactly. Like we've only just touched on the bad guy's story. That's something we really need to flesh out. Um, there's a lot more of this, you know, we've still been doing a bunch of hand waving and a bunch of these story elements and we want to go through and, and really work out a detailed outline here, I think. So, um, yeah, yeah. Anyhow. So yeah, we'll, we'll see. We'll see if we can, you know, so, so next week will be really the, the crisis point, uh, for you guys to convince me that season four is going to be boring. So, uh, so we'll see, we'll see what it looks like in episode outline, uh, uh, next time. All right. So we're going to end with that. Uh, that's the plan for next time. So, uh, please do join us on the discussion boards, um, to, uh, uh, to see. And, uh, uh, Marie, if you could post a, uh, link to the discussion boards, just to the, to the main page, uh, to make sure that people, and I'll, I'll, I'll repost that, uh, uh, in various places here so that people can make sure everybody has that. 
Um, so you can join the discussion. Uh, so, you know, I'm sure there are going to be some, um, some episode outline suggestions that we can consider and look through. Uh, I always welcome people's concrete suggestions in these things. Um, okay, great. Yeah. So just, yeah, good. The simplest one, right. The simplest one is just forums.signumuniversity.org. Actually, yeah, if you just go there, then you can navigate to, uh, to film film. Uh, that's the, oops, I just, I just put it wrong. I just put orums.signumuniversity.org in Twitch chat. That's very helpful. Um, yeah, anyway, yeah, that should work. Um, so, uh, the second one, not the first one, should work. Uh, excellent. Okay, so... Very good, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Uh, uh, Trish, glad you could uh, make it after all. That was very good. And thank- Yeah, yeah. Mm. I'm glad, you know, first launch. And I, I, I gave a shout out across social media that we're back. That's right. Back! Absolutely. And hopefully we'll have Dave with us next time. Now, the, our next session, uh, we're not going to be able to do it in two weeks because it's funny. Not only do I have a conflict in two weeks, but I have a conflict every two weeks after that until like December, um, uh, mostly through moot travel. Because uh, two weeks from today, I'll be on an airplane to L.A. for L.A. moot, which you should totally come to if you're in Southern California or anywhere near it. Um and then two weeks after that, I'll be going to Charlotte for Magnolia Moot. So we're going to just we're going to skip ahead three weeks. So right after I get home from like the Friday in between L.A. Moot and Magnolia Moot, we'll do our second session. And then two weeks after that will be the because then two weeks after Magnolia Moot is Thanksgiving. So then so, you know, right before that. So um, so the next time is going to be the second November 2nd. So Friday, November 2nd uh, will be our next session. And then we'll go to every two weeks starting from there. That should that should work out fine. Okay, uh, so you've got three weeks to think about episode outlines uh, for uh, for the the proposed season four uh, to finally sell me on this concept, and we'll uh, and we'll and we'll move forward. So, all right, cool, exactly. So you've got three weeks, Zachary, to convince me that season four won't be boring. That's it. That's it. Okay, so thanks everybody for joining me today. And I will say as always, thanks for listening and Godspeed.